We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Scared money don't make money, you know. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James DiVirgilio, alongside Alan Williams. And the sound you, of course, just heard was Florida intercepting Cam Rising to win the game in the Swamp. One of the best finishes in the Swamp of all time, if you were there. It was special. A spectacular evening. Alan, for you, I'm sorry. (laughs) You were not there. I was not there, but I was really enjoying it with the people I was with. Incredible game. I mean, from start to finish, just a slugfest, an all-timer. I mean, I couldn't really dream up a more fun, intense, fraught game than that. And, of course, for a Gator win, that's the best part. What was your level of, of FOMO not being at the game? Did it? Did you like wind up being okay, or were you constantly thinking, man, I'm, I'm really... No, I was okay. I mean, listen to people talk about it afterward and the experience and the environment, you know, and the pop in the stadium that you see in all the clips. Certainly, I'd like to be there, but, you know, life's about choices. But I'm really glad for Gator Nation and for the people who got to be there, they got to have that experience. And for, you know, listening to all the Utah fans talk about that experience and what that was like and then being kind of blown away by it. it makes me really thankful that I get to be a part of that as frequently as I do. Yeah, it's something you can easily take for granted. And that's why it's so fun to play these kind of games, right? On this podcast, I've long been a proponent of playing harder opening opponents of these, these, you know, outside of your conference matchups where you get to take on these teams, not just because the game is good, but the culture is so much fun. I had a great time talking with Utah fans afterwards as well and just really kind of getting their their feelings on football in the SEC. And, And of course, it's just markedly different than what occurs out west. Now, if you're wondering why Allen missed the game, it was for a great reason. He had sort of a friend reunion that they just could not find a date for, and he fell on the sword knowing he was going to miss this epic weekend, um, which is unlike him to miss a a Florida football game, so you know the stakes 
we're high. All right, as always, we have a huge show for you today. I think this is one of the biggest shows we have done as a podcast, given the nature of the win, a new coaching staff, a whole bunch of new things to break down. So much to discuss. And then off of one enormous game into another really big game. Correct. Right away. Back to back here. So there's no no breathing room, so to speak. We have this thing jam-packed with everything you need to know about how we thought the performance went, what we think Kentucky is going to be like, and then, of course, a film breakdown coming this week as well. As always, if you like this content, follow us on social media, sub to our YouTube channel for the film breakdowns, and become a patron on Patreon where you too can drop us a dono and support our efforts to bring you this content. This week will mark the first week for Carly, what we're going to refer to her as the commission her taking over the video editing duties for Bama Shane. That should be a fun job for her. She had a test run last weekend, did a great job. So looking forward to the editing coming out this week for the Utah Breakdown. And as a reminder, we will be hosting our first ever GNFP meet and greet, a casual evening at First Magnitude in Gainesville on Friday, October 14th. You're going to see that link on our social media. All you need to do is click an RSVP. The event is totally free. Uh, You can purchase food and drinks, of course, at First Magnitude, but that should be a really fun evening from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Friday night of the LSU weekend. Alan, let me hop in here. A lot of activity on the dono wire, so to speak. Small donos, Jaeger Van Wielden coming in, brand new. Welcome aboard. Welcome to the family. Jeremy Steele, also new. Welcome to the GNFP family as well. Medium donos coming in hot, coming in new. James McNabb. And then a level up from Coach Hundo. It seems like Coach Hundo one day will have to give a Hundo bomb. Yeah, I don't know how he could. Come on in, right? And then a, a large dono from a new um, patron and Sean Hanlon. Let's go. Welcome. Yeah, welcome aboard. A level up from the Moore family, longtime supporter. They had their first child in August, and he felt like it was more appropriate to now call his dono the entire family dono, the Moore family. Congrats dono. to you, by the way. And then James Galliano wrote to us last week and said that he wanted to basically increase his donation $10 every win. This has kind of become a, a recurring theme now for some patrons, which is pretty fun. And he's going to call this the, the Kyle Ingo, Engel sorry, sort of level up dono, giving some love to the walk-ons. So it's a way to say, they need that working love, hard They're behind important. the scenes, I'm going to support you. And then two hundo bombs this week. Whoa. The Andrews family, where they told us that all five of them listen each week, which is awesome. So Fantastic. hello to you, Andrews family. We love hearing that families are bonding over the pod. And then Scott Apple coming in as well, or it could be a pill. Scott, either way, let us know which one that is. And then, Alan, we had a dethroning dono come in. Wow. And we are recording this later than normal um, because Alan got back later. And so this dethroning dono would have occurred Next week, but instead it's slid in this week. So Guy Tumbleson is now the new king sitting on the throne of the GNFP. Welcome aboard, Guy. Cooper and Kylie Craig had a monumental two-week run overseeing the victory over Utah. We can only hope that Guy's run will start with a win against Kentucky as well. Alan, why don't you read the Dono Legends out for us? Yeah, Guy Tumbleson. That's a great name, by the way, if it's real. I, I don't like know it. if it's real, but either way, I'm, I'm all for it. Let's start with... The dethroned legends first. Cooper and Kylie Craig, Jason Walker, The Big Homie, Lil Payton, Constantine, Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stashmi, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truitt, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Jamie Galliano, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeve, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Remery, and Craig Scarado. 
Wow. Let's let some stellar people in that group. All right. Let's talk about this Gators win. The Gators win 29-26. I picked a Gator loss 28-31, which if Utah punches that last one in there, maybe that that's really close. And then you picked a Gator loss 20-24. So we're we're close. Just we thought it would be a close game. We thought thought the experience of Utah would win out, but of course that didn't happen. A lot of close plays in this game. We talked about the keys to the game, right? Uh, for the offense, for me, yards per carry, 4.5. It was 7.5. Amazing performance Amazing. by the offense rushing the football. Right. Number of catches by the RBs, three. Zero by right. RBs not involved in the passing game at all, really. Surprised by me. So on defense, yardage by their wide receivers less than 100. They had 51. Yeah, their receivers were virtually absent yeah. throughout the entire game. Which and thought, by, by their own design. Yes. They were not even really trying to throw it to them. As was ours for the most part. We'll get to that. Why don't you talk about your predictions there? I had the team that was going to rush the best was going to win. Like the simplest and most old school stat that wound up being true is Florida outrushed Utah. And that really ideally for Florida to win, they needed to have 200 yards rushing on offense, which they did. And they needed to hold Utah to less than 230, I mean, 200, less than 200 rather. And they did not. Utah eclipsed 230 yards for a while. It looked like Florida had a shot at that. Florida did hold Utah to 5.9 yards per carry, which is, it's too many yards per carry. But I think a lot of Florida fans, as we're going to talk about this, are criminally undervaluing how good Utah is at rushing the football. That's the comment I heard before the game, even after the game, all the way up until today. No matter what we said on the podcast last week, and I thought we did a good job of preparing at least you guys, that Utah is a very good team at rushing the football. They were dominant last year. Phenomenal. Number two in the country. And yes, they play in a softer conference, but they are still a very good running team on film. And so that does not surprise me, but a lot of Gator fans, I think, were delusional with what they thought maybe Utah was. As if it was just good. we were going to roll roll out and beat them forty to nothing, and they weren't going to get any yards. Now there's a lot of stuff that Florida could have done better. Don't get me wrong, but all in all, this was the game, Alan, that we expected. We said this was a true coin flip, and I couldn't think of a better way to describe this game. There are twenty different individual plays in this game that could have changed the fate of either team. Indeed. This was so close that if you replayed it 100 times in a simulation, I'm not sure if it's not 50-50. And again, that that's what we were getting at here. And I think that held true. I think both teams could find reasons to say they could have won by more. Then both teams could find reasons to say they could have lost by more. This was just a wild game. And you said it, Alan. I thought one of the best opening games for college football in general in quite some time, given the overall level of play and atmosphere. And it felt like a playoff game. It did. In a lot of respects. Um, Just an amazing, amazing opening game for the college football season and a joy to be a part of it. And obviously you and I are so thrilled that we won this football game. I don't think either of us are surprised because like we said, although we picked a loss, this was very much a game Florida could win. And uh, wow, just what an experience in general. For sure. And I think for both of us, it was a little bit hedging our bets. Like Florida is obviously the more talented team on paper, but just so many unknowns. It was hard to pick against a, such a known commodity in Utah, and they were right there. I think everything we thought would be true of them, for the most part, the scouting report that you helped build was like extremely accurate to them and what they were doing, and we'll get into all that. But, yeah, tremendous game. So I just want to ask a few atmosphere questions for those of us who weren't at the game. What was it like at the beginning or in and around kickoff? 
it was amazing. It it was, you know, we had said it felt different. It felt like it hasn't felt in quite some time. I think some of that's due to the the post COVID emergence of a lot of people. Uh, last year, of course, you had you had crowds, but not everybody was on board. This year, way more on board. Uh, just a different tailgating atmosphere. The student atmosphere was different. They were there much earlier than normal. We had predicted that. We have we chronicled sort of the re rise of the student section. And uh, you know, I think Billy Napier came in as high as someone could be for a coach when when we said he was number one, right, Alan? We fielded right. like a ton of requests. Why? Who is this guy? Why not a bigger named guy? And we're like, well, this is the number one guy on our list. Here's why. But I think he had earned the respect of a lot of Gators fans, and people were really curious to see what he was about. And the game delivered, and then some. So at the opener, it was it was a ten out of ten, like ready to take off. And then obviously on the opening drive. When Florida's marching down the field, it only built that only to unfortunately have really so much of that energy sucked right out with For Utah sure. picking up the fumble and then scoring a touchdown. And then it was sort of a a rebuilding the stadium's energy and momentum, which happened. But I would have loved to have known what would have happened if Florida had scored a touchdown right there and Utah had gotten the ball on their own territory. It would have it would have been, you know, super loud. just madness, but a really, really great atmosphere. All right, let me take us to the end. That moment, I'm in such... I would imagine tense, like craziness in the stadium before the play. I mean, the game is on the line right there, and Bernie picks it off. What was that? I think the way to describe this is most most of us as Florida fans, if you've been around long enough, you've had times when you felt like we for sure were going to win and times when you felt like we for sure were going to lose. If you're like 30 or under, you had the Urban Meyer years, and then the rest of your years – we were going to lose. Like we just were anti-clutch. Um, and so it depends on kind of where you are. If you're, if you're a college student, like a freshman or a sophomore, you really haven't thought anything about Florida ever being good for the most part, unless you were a little kid. So you're just sort of watching the game, but it went from certain despair at that point in time. The only silver lining was that you knew Utah could not run the football because if they did, it certainly felt like they were going to score. And we're going to talk about whether or not they should have run the football especially because we chronicled on this podcast that Cam Rising's Achilles heel was his goal line quarterbacking. He threw most of his picks there. He had by far his lowest completion rate. He's not very good in the red zone. So in my mind, I had that. But I also had the fact that they were just marching down the field. For sure. And we were offering almost no opposition. And they still had 29 seconds left. Everything felt bad. It felt like overtime was going to be a miracle. And then all of a sudden it's interception and it was an absolute mosh pit, right? If you were there, it's like what you want. You're just jumping on each other. There's 12 of us. We're just tackling each other and somehow no one ever falls off the bleachers. It's just a, <laughs> it's mayhem ensuing. It was one of those moments you can watch a lot of football games for and you only get so many of them. A walk-off interception in your own end zone at home from a guy in Bernie who had gotten just torched all day long. I mean, he was absolutely covering no one although he was trying and then he he gets you know gets that pick in a in a situation where he's not covering anyone he's actually sort of the robber or the rat just incredible an incredible moment a top a top 10 moment in the swamp for sure and and a magnet just a, a win that had a lot of magnitude to it you know sometimes we've had big wins but this one is like the world's in front of you right now you're finding out about your team you seal a top 10 win the the players are going nuts the coaches are going nuts the fans are going nuts and it's like it felt like a hollywood scripted opener Super cool moment. I I had almost a delayed reaction because I couldn't tell live. Did he fully catch it? And if he didn't, then we're right back in the frying pan. 
but the reaction of everybody else. I had a immediate reaction, and then I was like, oh, wait, please tell me you caught that. And then just a lot of celebration after that. Okay, let me ask about the weather because we talked a lot about this, the humidity. Utah coming in, having to deal with the Florida heat and humidity. Was, you know, It was really a wet day. Was that a factor, do you think, I, in the game? You know, I had thought it wasn't going to be one coming in, and it really wasn't one. Certainly, Utah players were cramping. Right. I but, think the 1 p.m. game would have been a whole world-changing environment, which we had talked about. But, you know, really, it was relatively... It was swampy, but it was not that hot. So you were losing fluids, fine, whatever. I don't think it really made a difference in the game for either team, personally. I think what was more likely to make a difference for both teams was you go from a a fall camp where no matter how hard you try to simulate a season, you play a game one at, at the most intense level for all four quarters. And this was not finesse football. Both of right. these teams were, were fighting for every inch at the line of scrimmage, and it was a tiring, grinding affair. And I think it took a toll on both teams towards the end. I mean, they, there were some tired players there. Florida obviously gets the surge of the win. They're going to feel great. And Utah, I think, went on the play and probably felt pretty, not only downtrodden, but pretty beat up. I mean, yeah. They, they, you know, that was that was an experience in the swamp. For sure. I, I think, yeah, there's probably just a normal amount of, like, I'm tired, I'm cramping. Maybe the humidity, I'm certainly up that a little bit but it didn't seem like everyone was just gas done so yeah a lot of talk maybe it had some we'll never know it had some effect i'm sure but in the end it was a great game played by two like really i think well coached and for that part of the year well prepared teams especially on the gator side to get them up and running as fast as they did and that was a big question mark for me could we get ourselves ready to play this game in time that this the gator team at the end of the year would be a presumably a lot better, more efficient on offense. Could we get there fast enough? And it was enough. So the stats for the Gators on offense, let's talk about that first 452 yards of offense, 284 yards rushing, 168 passing, a very nice 7.5 yards per rush, aided of course by Richardson's scrambles, no interceptions, two fumbles, only one lost, 7 of 12 on third down. The numbers on AR, 17 of 24, he had 11 carries, 106 yards, and three touchdowns. The running backs, Montreal Johnson, 75 yards. ETN, 64 yards on five carries. Nick Wright, you know, maybe the least efficient of the group. 10 carries, 39 yards. No sacks allowed. 2-2 two, two on fourth down, 3-3 three, three in the red zone. All in all, I think the staff has got to be really pleased with that production against this particular Utah group. I want to start with Anthony Richardson as we discuss this game. I mean, he's the headline. He was the headline coming in. What is he going to look like? Can he live up to the hype? Athletically, I think everybody in college football was wowed by those couple plays. Of course, the the spin move, him streaking down the sideline for the touchdown where he, as Spencer Hall said on Twitter, gently excuse the defender. Just I'm just going to gently sidestep you here because I'm – so much more athletic than you are. And he just pops when you look at him on the TV or live. Everybody's watching. Him. And that's been true from the moment we've gotten eyes on him. Just give me your overall thoughts on his play before we get into the details of it. Not surprising. And I felt like a, a proud older brother. You know, Alan, I, I have on the YouTube channel the, the very first plays we saw that he played right. uh, in a Gators uniform against Oklahoma in garbage time. 
and I saw it and we came on the podcast and I said, you may not have noticed this, but in the fourth quarter, as the game was winding down, there was, there was some magic by Anthony Richardson. And here's this read that he made against a cover two. This dude can, this dude can play. And then Georgia last year, when we were taking a ton of questions and comments, do you still stand by him? He got owned. He's terrible. We put out on the YouTube channel. You can go see it right now. Here's why this guy's mistakes in this game were actually really good. He has a great feel for how to play the football game. I have no doubt he's not going to be an excellent football player. It's a major reason why all last year we were beating the drum as hard as possible from the preseason. This guy's got to be the starter. He's a special player. And so it just felt great. I felt great for him. He was at peace. And you could see he was at peace and he was calm and he was jittery in this game. He admitted it afterwards. He was nervous. You, you could, could tell at the beginning. You could see it in his play. He was rushing things. He normally doesn't rush. His first One of his first passes, just a bullet into nowhere. It was yep. like, he was trying to get the ball down. out too fast. And he did not do that last year. And I think he was just hyped, right? It's a big game, big moment. It's finally him. He's got a coach who supports him. Uh, but just sensational stuff. And this is the beginning. The reality was, and I'm going to make a big statement here. This was a relatively pedestrian outing for Anthony Richardson. Like, I would agree. And that's going to be true. Like He had that one really sweet pump fake play we'll talk about. But in all honesty, this was a very routine, normal performance from him. Nothing special. Nothing amazing, smart, consistent, one, maybe two forced throws, one that was particularly not not really probably something the staff's going to want, the other one they'd probably live with. Outside of that, pretty routine. And that's what makes him super special, is for him facing man defense, Allen, which we talked about. If you play man as Utah does, mm-hmm. and we get down the field, and he's able to find space, what's going to happen? A massive run is going to happen and that was the result of that touchdown run is we didn't have anyone open. There's nowhere to go. He Not only does he climb the pocket, again, this is important. We've talked about his pocket presence from the moment he stepped on campus. He's not a guy like Michael Vick or even others who run around a lot in the pocket to escape. He will take the most efficient route that a Tom Brady-like guy would. Climbing the pocket, good footwork, exiting the gap, and then, then he's off and then he's a special athlete. But that's the most exciting thing about this, Alan. Is yeah. that this is this was this was routine for him. I don't think he left the game feeling like he did anything special at all. I think he felt like, hey, I have things I could do better, and this was pretty normal. I'm fast, I'm athletic. These are the things I can do. And I think he's as a lot of analysts said, he's going to be the best player on the field in every game he plays, talent wise. And that's what we have said. His ceiling is unlimited. We're going to find out more about him as the year goes on, but it's also why, and I'll, I'll kind of encapsulate everything with this. It's why we said that if we lose Richardson, we're three to four games potentially worse this season. And that's an unbelievable statement to make, but I think it's true. There's no chance. There's not even a chance in the world we win that game with Jack Miller or anyone no, else on no. this roster and forget it's not happening. And so that's how powerful his influence is. It also influences the entire team and it's just beginning. So... If he stays healthy, we should be in for a truly special year of watching him play quarterback. Um, I loved it. Yes, for sure. And his gravity on the field like warps everything that the other team is trying to do or is afraid of, just what we talked about last week. Again, he he pops, but what we asked him to do and some of the things that he did on this field, I, again, I think it's just scratching the surface. He's capable of so much more, not just like, oh, if he grows, like, he could do it next week if we ask him to. And if the this is what the defense is giving us and we're more prepared and all the things that would be baked into that. So, yeah, I have a little question here about him most impressive and 
needs most work. And I mean, let's, let's answer the impressive side. You've already talked about a lot of things, but I want to hone in on something and you can add anything else you want here. Yeah. I'm going to leave the athleticism part out yeah. because that's obviously very impressive. And I'm going to go to something that I saw during the Oklahoma game. He shreds teams that run zone. Every time Utah dropped back and played zone, he murdered them. The ball comes out exactly right on time. He's moving safeties with his eyes on every single snap. He's delivering the ball on time. It's an absolute missile in stride to his receivers. I mean, I cannot tell you. I cannot even remotely tell you how high level that is. And at times it's effortless, so it just looks routine. He's sticking the ball 20 yards down to Ricky on a route that we'll talk about how good Ricky Persall's running was. But that is not easy to do. He makes it look easy because he's confident, his footwork is excellent, and the ball comes out on time, and it's accurate with tons of velocity. But he diagnoses teams in zone so quickly. He almost always finds the right guy. And if you combine that with Florida's what looks to be very strong offensive line this year, we're just at the very beginning of what can be done in the passing game. Now, as far as what needs work, and I'm going to say this is a major unknown Florida was very very unwilling to challenge Utah when they played man-to-man defense almost at any point in time with their receivers that was pretty disappointing to me given how well our offensive line was pass blocking I was not loving that but I also believe what I said to be true is true we went through a spring and fall camp just to install the basics of Billy Napier's offense We had to play a premier opponent. They looked at the same thing we did. Look, they have six of seven starters gone from that front seven. If we're going to win this football game, we're going to win this football game running it. And obviously we know Richardson can throw the ball really well, but we also know Utah's secondary is the strength of their football team. Right, Great corners, great safety. And our receivers, while fine, are not the strength of our football team. And I think they just loaded up their prep on we're going to win this way. That was their tactical plan to beat a Utah team. And they saw they had man. They saw what was there. And they said, we're not going to deviate from our plan. And obviously it worked, Alan. We scored a lot of points against the Utah defense that, of course, is, is, is young in some areas. But you can't say it didn't work. But that's something that's going to be, let's put a big question mark there. Because teams are certainly going to say, hey, we got a lot of film on Richardson now against zone defenses. And he is a menace. But Utah played a lot of man. And Florida was unwilling to attempt to challenge that. Perhaps we should do something similar. So that's what I'm going to give the question mark for. The rest of it though was was really solid. Footwork, pocket presence, maintaining the offense, not having false starts, just in general, poise, um, decision making, like we said, especially to come out in game one, new offense, right? You're finally the guy, you're playing in your hometown, you're playing as a top 10 team. I mean, just phenomenal. Yeah, I would agree very much. And I was going to say what was most impressive to me outside the athleticism was, of course, uh, I think his presence running the offense, right? This was a, you know, Mullen intimated that this is where he had problems. I don't know. We don't know if that's true, but look, I had no problems out there getting the play on in time, getting everybody set up. The offense moved really efficiently and never looked clunky or disorganized. And again, that is coaching that everyone has to be on the same page. But if the quarterback is confused, it's going to really slog things down. He looked in command of everything they asked him to do. Again, it wasn't a huge variety of things, but he looked really sharp in all of those things, like his movements, even the footwork on some of those 
kind of tricky spins and pitches and rollouts and boots. He looked great doing those things. They've obviously practiced those a ton. Um, and yeah, what needs work? Like you said, it's the unknown. I would have loved to see what would have happened had we challenged. We did not throw the ball down the field, I think, at all. We had one. One, right. And We tried on several others, and Utah should be given credit, that they had a great feel for when Napier wanted to go deep. Because the times we tried, they had generally double brackets on our receivers going deep. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But yeah. that was part of it is we did attempt plays like that. Um, but only, only you know, I'd say seven or eight fewer than what Louisiana was doing every game last year. So that tells you something about, I think, that specific game plan for Utah. So let's talk about this. We ran a lot of like bootleg. If, if you don't know what that's, the quarterback kind of rolls out. You can either have people with him or without him. You can be some misdirection. We ran a lot of that. That was really effective for us. Is that something that Utah was like showing us that that was they were going to be um, that was going to be effective them against them? Is that a sustainable thing moving forward? It's a little bit of a tricky kind of thing, right? If you if you do that too much, people are going to start to like take that away from you. It's absolutely sustainable because, and this requires understanding why Kyle Shanahan of the 49ers, someone you're going to hear mentioned for as long as Billy Napier is here is such a, a, a respected offensive coordinator. It's because of what he does in the run game. And if you're a Florida fan, you have to get used to looking at the run game in a way you have not before. It's very creative and very dynamic. On almost every play, Florida has either a jet sweep or an orbit motion. So some, some player coming across the formation. We're either in the pistol most times or we're in a more traditional shotgun set where the running back is next to you. Um, but if you're in the pistol, you can run play action, you can run power, you can run wide zone, you can run inside zone, you can run a zone read. You can run all of those things. You can also run a naked bootleg. It's ridiculous. That's why the pistol is such a good college formation is you're requiring your defensive ends and linebackers to read maybe two or three things on one play. And if they get one thing wrong, it's Anthony Richardson sprinting out to the sideline on the wide side of the field. Right. And if they get it right, it's still Anthony Richardson racing a defensive end to the wide side of the field. The only way you can stop that, which is what Utah tried to do, is start sending what's called like a wide nine pressure. Send your send your defensive ends further out or your linebackers further wide and just literally rush them up the field into the lanes that Anthony Richardson might want to bootleg into. But you can't because Florida's running the inside zone between the tackles so well. It's the first time, Allen, in a decade, maybe longer, that Florida has run so successfully in between the tackles so consistently and that is why that bootleg is so good because they had to honor the inside running and that changes everything that's going on. And that's what's so exciting about this offense is if Florida is able to get even remotely similar production out of their running backs and their offensive line, this offense will be extremely hard to stop given that Richardson is so dangerous. And what they're going to ask him to do is not complicated. We're talking two, three receivers going out at most. And we're talking about a guy here who can easily handle empty sets, which they gave him multiple empty sets and read the field really well. I mean, that is a heck of a thing for a defensive coordinator to even remotely game plan what you do against this football team if you cannot stop the run. Yes. And I think that was most encouraging is that we had a game plan where we wanted to run the ball and we were able to execute it even when Utah was pressing us and defending it well schematically. Okay, so there's a lot of talk about Billy Napier. He leans more against the more towards the run game. We've talked about 
yeah, the passing can be really efficient in this offense because it takes bigger chunks downfield. Obviously, we didn't do that. Was it too much running for you? Would you like to see a little more diversity throwing the ball? For me, it's going to come back down to my favorite sort of offensive quote, right? It's all about the numbers. And on the the preview of Billy Napier becoming Florida's coach episode, we talked about how Napier's offense is really good about attacking the numbers correctly. He was not so good at it in this game. And again, I'm, I'm going to give him a pass here because I really think that this was a, like we talked about, it's just different. Game one install is different. You are not where you're going to be at next year. At the, at the start of next year, your program is an entire year ahead. Totally. It's not the same thing. So I think he played the odds of winning this individual football game and limited some of the things that the team wasn't quite as good at. So it was not too much running for me from that standpoint, but obviously towards the end of the game, Alan, Utah played cover zero and showed cover zero on two or three different occasions. And uh, at that point in time, look, Xavier Henderson is a good receiver. I mean, he may not be, you know, one of the best guys in the league right now, but he's a very capable, especially man to man with no safety. He is a good route runner and he will probably win that matchup. And he was definitely hungry for the ball. You could see that he was seeing what, what anyone else saw and we did not attempt it. It worked out. We converted, right? We made it happen. I want to say this to you if you're worried. Don't be worried. Louisiana was throwing the ball all over the yard whenever that happened on film all the time. We're going to get to that point. So that's what I want to keep saying is take this game tactically as a one-off. Let them, let us grow into the season and see what happens. So that's why it was not too much running. Now, if this was repeated behavior and we're in week six or seven and we keep seeing cover zero, cover one, favorable one-on-one matchups, a safety, which they did a lot. They shaded their safety over one side of the field and let us literally just do whatever we wanted on the other side. You have got to punish teams relentlessly for that. But I'm going to give them a pass for this particular game. I think that's what I anticipated you saying. And I think that's important to like note that there because this wasn't peak performance from the offense, but really effective nonetheless. So yeah, the Gators did not throw over the middle a lot. They threw a lot of what I would say were marginally successful wide receiver screens. Um, that was not because, again, just to confirm, that was not because of this is what Utah was inviting us to do. This is more of what the Gators wanted to do to kind of like, I think, protect what the team wanted to do for this particular game. Does that still hold true? I think so. And to Florida's credit, though, some of some of Florida's biggest conversions came on passes over the middle. Totally. And and my favorite one on film is is third and fifteen or third and seventeen. Uh and and Richardson throws an absolute strike to to Ricky uh over the seam. And Utah has an excellent defense called and they have an inverted cover two where the two safeties are gonna come down and basically take away that throw. Take away the in breaking hook or dig. That's their job. So they're going to chuck the receiver outside the numbers. The corner is going to invert himself and become the safety. And you create a funnel between your linebacker, your corner, and your safety. But you flip it on them. So it's a little bit disguised. Well, on that play, this is this is the benefit of a good route running receiver. Is that Ricky sees the safety invert. He knows what the safety's job is. So he early on bends his route a little more outside which means the safety can't really quite contact him. He has to move over further towards the sideline, which allows Ricky to curl right around him and an on-time ball is delivered. The same route was being run on the left side. The route was not run that way. There was no recognition of the invert, and the safety just erased our receiver on the left side. And that is the difference between a really good route runner and just a receiver. 
And if you have two just receivers there, there is no completion. Instead, it's it's what looks like a very easy completion that absolutely was not. That was an on-time, perfect pass, perfect route, great blocking by the O-line in a third and 17 situation against a really good secondary running a complicated play because they, again, they know you cannot just line up against Anthony Richardson and let him know what you're doing, which also shows they have good recognition of how good this guy is at passing the football. They were not lining up vanilla against him at all outside of man. So we were effective over the middle when we needed to be Allen, but to your point, it was not our game plan to attempt to do that. Uh, we were just going to try to beat them with our zone running, which we did. So encouraging that we were able to do it when we needed to. And obviously, secondarily, we did score. And this is important to note. We scored that 50-yard rushing touchdown because we sent two receivers vertical. That was a bomb play that they stacked double brackets on. They committed four players there and rushed four. And we flooded one side of the field. You have to give Napier credit for that. That is a wise thing to do when your quarterback is that athletic. If they're going to play man, flood two deeps and send your intermediate guy to the sideline and leave the entire left side of the field empty because they're in man. Nobody is going to be there. So you have to make sure you factor that in when you're thinking, well, man, I really wish we would have thrown it deeper. That's basically a 50-yard go route for a touchdown. It's the same concept. That's great. Yeah, and I think that might have been my favorite play of the, the entire game, the Pearsall catch that you mentioned because it showed, hey, we had to do this. That was, I think, the moment where I was like, wow, we have something really special in this game is that we can line up in third and 15. We're behind the chains and still picked up a really impressive first down when we really needed it. Um, so Pearsall, as advertised, looked great. Every time looked smooth, looks fast. You mentioned all the technique that went into that route. Um, and you can see why everyone was panicking when he went down because – they need him. He was the featured guy immediately in the receiver core. And I, I don't know what this game would have been like without him. Yeah, it'd be different. Whittemore can run those routes, and I like Whittemore. But, you know, Ricky's got a little bit more burst, more mm-hmm. acceleration. But mainly it's about route running. There's a great article on Devontae Adams floating around right now in the NFL, moved from Green Bay to the Raiders. And the Raiders receivers who are talented in and of themselves were saying the shocking thing about him is it's not like he's just blowing by people. It's deception. It's head fakes, it's foot positioning, it's understanding defensive coverages. That's what gets him open. And that's why, you know, Florida went so hard after a guy like like Ricky was that he essentially has those things. And it's going to push the receiving core to be better because they're going to see how he gets open and they're going to recognize it's not just about me blowing by somebody. And uh, I thought Xavier Henderson had a really nice game as well. You know, six catches. He had a super important third down conversion that's on true. what should have been a failed wide receiver screen he had no real chance of picking it up picked up five yards entirely on his own there I thought his hands looked good his routes looked good he was very competent um, so I think what we thought may be true between Shorter who had a quiet game but they were targeting him between Shorter Ricky and Henderson that's a competent plenty competent enough receiving core it's not perfect right now but it's competent enough to be able to beat most teams on Florida's schedule along with our run game and offensive line and AR Let's talk about the running backs a little bit. Um, first look at Montreal Johnson, a Gator uniform for the first time, and then I think the surprise of the day, Trevor Etienne, who you can see why the coaches decided this guy's going to play in his first game, and he's going to get a lot of touches. He looked like the most dynamic guy by far in that room. Uh, Johnson also looked good, had a lot of great reads. He's a really effective runner. Yeah, I think Nick won right, maybe a little disappointed in his – 
in his output, but you know, that's just one game. Not not every game is created equal. What was your thoughts on all three of those guys? In general, excellent. Let's start with pass protection, something that's really important and something that drove us crazy, right? And something I'm going to celebrate right now is Travis Etienne. Allen, remind me, what year is he? He's a freshman. He's a freshman. And well, not, tre- we should call him Trevor because that's not, his name. Yeah, sorry. I no, did that Trevor all Etienne. week. So, it's, why are there two T's? Yes, Trevor, not Travis. But TR, Trevor's a yes. freshman. Yeah, he's a freshman. But where I'm going with this is he's a true freshman. And the staff trusted him to carry the ball and play, which we should say previous staffs, he's not going to see the field. That's great. Secondarily, the move he put on two guys on one play in that game was disgusting. And I can't wait on film review to display it because, I mean, he just takes the soul (laughs) of either the nickel or the linebacker coming down with a ridiculous little inside hesitation move. And, I mean, that shades, obviously, of his brother who was, you know, a high-level pick for a reason. But he is wiggly and elusive. And And he's only Faster than I thought he would be. Yes, he's very quick. And that's what you want. And he's going to learn from Montrell. And, look, Montrell... There's a reason why this guy's so productive. There's also a reason why Napier and his staff coach football really well. And we're going to talk about the O-line, but Montreal has an, a phenomenal feel for how to run behind a zone-blocking scheme. And if you're old enough to know who Terrell Davis was um, of the Broncos fame and Mike Shanahan running... In the mid-late 90s. Yes, running wide zone, exactly what Napier runs offensively, kind of made it really famous and popular in the, in the modern era. The wide zone, which we'll talk more about, allows you to cut the ball back by design. It's not actually a counterplay, but if everyone over-pursues, you cut it back. And, and Montreal right now is by far the best feel of that. And that's why he's getting the most carries. Is, and he, he finished one in the red zone because of that. But there's no doubt the ceiling right now, if we're, if we're handicapping these three, Allen, the ceiling guy is definitely Etienne. I mean, that's, that's your guy. And they know that. And that's why they're giving him carries now is they want to put stuff on film and let him look at it and say, okay, here's here's a cutback lane. Here's how you follow this. Be patient. And he was patient, but Montreal's very patient. And the difference between Naquan in this game and Montreal is Montreal would wait and flow and wait until the lane produced itself, and Naquan would wait, and then he would go. And generally, that's okay in a power blocking scheme. You hit the gap, but that's not okay in his own blocking scheme. And so he limited himself a little bit. But all in all, extremely solid work by the running backs. Really bad fumble by Montreal. Weak sauce fumble. You cannot fumble that kind of ball. He knows that. That just cannot happen. And then same thing with Etienne. Weak sauce fumble. Like you're out there. You've already gained big yards. He's loose with the ball. It's it's high and outside. You cannot fumble that. Thankfully, he got it back. That was the low point. But as far as everything else went, pass protection. I mean, the, the blocking, by the way from Montreal was exemplary. I mean, he's coming across formations to to clear guys out for AR that are coming through. Can't say enough good things about these guys on film. They should be really proud of their production minus those two fumbles. Yeah, and that's something that the coaches are going to really drill them on. You could tell that the players were already anticipating that and some of their post-game comments kind of have, you know, <laughs> having fun with them a little bit. So, yes, we've talked a little bit about the running scheme, which is a little di- different. So, effective against Utah particularly so any of the offensive linemen really stand out to you as being particularly effective first of all as a unit they stood out that's important torrance was as delivered yes just an absolute wall you can't get by him on pass protection he mauls people you can't even move him on pass protection 
and in run blocking with zone. And let me just quickly describe zone. It's actually very simple. The zone running concept is is so simple to describe because the sole goal is to get everyone on your team going to one sideline, one direction. The defense doesn't know which way you're going. So it's okay that you're going to employ every player to go in one direction. So if I want to run to the right, I want all of my linemen, right? Depending on what I'm trying to do to, in the perfect world, essentially get on, get on the outside or sideline shoulder of the defense and turn them towards the middle of the field. So my running back can get to the edge. That's an outside zone. And on the inside zone, I'm going to use double teams to push up the field and create a crease, typically two creases where my running back can go through. But very simply, zone blocking requires your linemen to all move at the same time in the same direction, right? And you can do some stuff behind it to change it up, like split zone other things. But that's what zone blocking is. So zone blocking allows the running back to get the ball and there is no specified gap. He's going to flow with the play, flow play slide. So let's imagine we're going to run right, get the ball, you're going to run right and you're looking. And you're finding a gap that you like. And you're patiently waiting for something to emerge because it's a zone scheme. The linemen do not have somebody assigned to block. They're taking the best match in front of them. And they're going to continue to push vertically up the field. The best running backs wait behind them. But this O-line, Allen was grinding people up. I mean, the double teams were phenomenal. Whether it was, you know, whether it was Gouraj and White or uh, whether it was whether it was Kingsley, who was phenomenal at center. Great. I mean, he had multiple pancakes where he's just throwing guys aside. Whether it's Torrance, Tarkin was fantastic on the right tackle side. I mean, he's, he's the weakest one of the five for sure, but he's solid. He's consistent. He's there. And they also played him at left tackle at certain points. We tried in some... Some younger guys, they gave play early on in the game. In fact, yeah. the most frustrating series is when we sort of had a very different offensive line set up in there. Uh, but all in all, this was a smashing success. Zone blocking is very complicated to get to. It takes a long time to install. This was a master class for game one to have these linemen blocking like they've been zone blocking for their whole career. Yes, I against could, a difficult opponent in Utah. Against this a wasn't difficult a, opponent. It was you know, remarkable. Team. And I understand the average fan. You're probably listening thinking if you don't follow football at that level, you're like, okay, great. They did look good, but how good was it? It was unbelievably good. It's very complicated. And take that with you. Smashing success. We do not have what we had in the past. There is no Delance out there. There is no weak spot. These dudes can play. And I expect them to be able to hold up against everyone. They're going to have harder matchups for sure, but it doesn't matter. The technique is so sound. This is going to hold up. This is sustainable. We should expect the O-line to be a rock for this team this year, barring injuries. But what an incredible debut. They have to be one of the most pleased position groups in the entire team with how well they played in that game. They were just fantastic. And again, Torrance absolutely delivered. He's a phenomenal luxury at right guard. I mean, what a player. Yeah, for sure. And we talked about no sacks. Really... Not a lot of intense pressure on AR. Of course, you know, there's moments, but wasn't felt like he was under duress the entire game and he's just escaping because he's a magician. He no, had not at all. Nice places to work. And then, as you said, this is new. There, And there are some running backs who are really good at running behind zone and some who are not. And it doesn't always go either way. You could be great running behind, you know, zone blocking and can't do the other way. So some adjustment for somebody like Nick One Wright, I think, is. To be expected, you would hope he would have been there already, but that would have been a luxury considering he's been injured, hasn't gotten the reps. So we're not like throwing him out that he can't do it, but it is definitely a learning curve. And it, it was encouraging to see, of course, Montreal who can do it. He's shown he can do it. And then ETN already been doing that well. 
All right. Anything else that you want to note before we get to changes we'd like to see? Oh, for sure. I think like we mentioned, you know, Billy has a great feel for, for calling the run game. And again, this is, this is important. The last two plays of Florida's drive when they score to take a lead at the very end of the game uh, were, were similar, similar looks. They're both counter runs. So for all of us, you know, Florida fans who have suffered counter runs on the other side. Yeah. But <laughs> one was with a running back and one was with Richardson, which is a nuanced little wrinkle of the look. But because you had just had Montreal run in the end zone on the previous play, of course, they faked that same look. And then it was a keeper for Richardson, which is just really hard to defend that. It's really, really hard. Uh, but on film, it really stands out. He has a great feel for when to call things. And he was routinely catching Utah, trying to guess perhaps which way it was going. And then he dialed up the split zone. And think of the split zone as like once a team starts kind of getting a good feel for when you're going to run right or left, you throw a split zone play in, which is sort of like your counter where basically you're, you're tight end or your H back goes in a different direction than everyone else does. And that allows your running back to counter outside of the weak side, essentially. And Florida had a lot of success with that on big, big moments. It's like a home run run play. And he had a really good feel for when to call it. So I thought that was solid. Overall for the offense, Allen, I think it was about as polished as you could ever hope for in a game one, year one, top 10 opponent game facing a coach who's been there for 18 years a team that we set as a super high floor in Utah, and boy, did they ever. They do not give you anything. We had to earn everything from them. They're not going to give you the game. They're not going to make dumb mistakes. They're barely going to call them penalties. The offense should be very proud of themselves. And then lastly, as a note for offense, which isn't necessarily offense, Diabate was often the guy Florida had the most success on. Yeah, on a lot Utah's of questions defense. about that. And in yeah. fact, if you if you watched Utah's defense on film, 10 guys pretty much did the right thing almost all the time. And there was one guy that was spinning circles or lost in coverage or going the wrong way or getting trapped underneath when he shouldn't be underneath or not setting an edge, and it was Diabate. And so they're having a hard time getting him to play disciplined football there as well. Um, and it hurt them in this game. They're just so depleted at linebacker this year, having lost two guys to the NFL. They played their most athletic guy, and uh, Diabate was on the receiving end of that pump fake by Richardson and, and really there was no reason for him to even try to get it he was already he had him squared up for the tackle uh, but unfortunately for him he transferred took an L and did not look great on film uh, so we're not gonna kick a man when he's down but that was a notable thing on film that stood out for Utah's defense versus Florida's offense so I could not be more pleased Allen I want to close the offense side with this and we'll talk about tactics don't worry if you're wondering should Florida have run the clock out in the first half or should we have called a timeout? We're going to talk about those things in coaching corner. So don't worry. We're going to get to those things. We're going to talk about that kind of stuff. But all in all, this was a phenomenal debut by Billy Napier and his offense in game one. Again, really realistic expectation wise to install what he installed, to do what he did with the roster, to get this team to play at that level the way that he had to. It was exciting. It's a great place to start. I expect this offense to get much, much better than what we displayed in game one. But you have to keep in mind, year one, game one. And they should be really proud of how they looked on film. Totally agree. A few changes. I think we both agreed that we'd like to see more ETN. Again, I think that was awesome output from him in his first game. So this guy, I would not be surprised if he's not getting the bulk of the carries by midseason. If he shows the staff that he's capable of doing all the things that you would want your lead ball carrier to do. And of course, it's we're still going to see Montreal Johnson and Naquan Wright. But 
the fact that he got that many carries in the first game really bodes well for his future, and I would love to see him get even more carries. And clutch carries. It yes. was him It was him or Montrell in on the last drive. Yes. So they were showing that they respected that, that burst there. All right, what else? We want to see more aggressive passing versus man-to-man, obviously. And yeah. I expect to see it. And so this is different for me. You know, we've spent the McIlwain era. We've spent the Mullen era. So much of these changes we like to see were we're impassioned please for like please just do the obvious expected value thing do the right thing i don't doubt we're going to do it but it's something to watch for let's keep an eye on this was this tactical like we think it was or are we wrong and this is going to be an issue we'll highlight that for you if it is but look for that and then obviously we didn't really show a desire to do even anything versus man-to-man route wise the routes were super vanilla and basic and we just weren't going to try despite knowing we were going to get a lot of man-to-man. So again, I'm going to leave that up to the tactical play because I've seen what Louisiana has done against man-to-man on film before, and it was very different. And that's not lost on Napier. So keep an eye on that because you better believe Kentucky saw what Florida put on film versus zone and versus man. And they're going to be thinking we should play more man. Spoiler alert for the Kentucky breakdown. Kentucky zone does not play a lot of man, and they much prefer to play zone. So that's going to be interesting we'll in the first place. But keep an eye on that. All in all, though, Great debut. For sure. Yeah, a lot to celebrate there. Okay, the Florida defense, who I think really acquitted themselves nicely overall. We're going to talk about what things they did well and didn't do well. But I, I want to say that we have some probably some criticism for them, but I thought a really game effort from them. 216-yard passing, 230-yard rushing by Utah. Utah was 8 of 13 on third down, 4 of 6 in the red zone. But the defense had those two goal line stands, including one pick. This was a really interesting game. We talked at the top about how effective Utah is running the ball. As you look back at the film, what made them so successful against what the Gators were trying to do? Two main things. One, and I said on this very podcast last week, that Utah rarely uses a tempo or no huddle offense. Like almost never. Like less than 5% of the time. And it's typically end game situation. Well, good for them. Yeah. Nice game theory. Oh, you think we don't do that, James? We're going to do it a lot. That was uber successful for them. Secondly, we told you that they like to spend 50% or so of their snaps in 12 personnel, one running back, two tight ends. They said, hold my beer. How about we're going to spend like a quarter of our snaps in 13 personnel, which is absurd. Who runs 13 personnel? Well, they did, and it was pretty smart of them because we didn't counter that effectively, and we'll talk about that. But that's one running back and three tight ends which they employed all the time, which also makes some sense because we had said, listen, receivers, zero fear. We have no worry about that. They're like, great, we'll just employ this. We're going to basically play Madden with a goal line formation for most of the game and see if <laughs> it you was can stop wild. it. And it was, it was successful for yeah. them. It was successful for them. So I think some of the other things we talked about, right? The scouting report was this team runs the ball really well. This team is really hard to get pressure on. And this team has nasty tight ends that they're going to feature. And all of those things wound up being exactly true. Disappointing for me, Alan, that Florida, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in a second. I don't want to get too far into it yet. I don't want to ruin the, the, the line before we unpack it. But Florida, I thought their game plan was lacking. Despite what was obvious for what Utah was going to do and who they were going to be targeting most, I thought if, if Tony could have a do-over, I think he would change some things. But all in all, Utah was exactly what we thought they were with a couple of nice game theory wrinkles. And I want to give them credit for that. Very nice game plan from Whittingham. 
and uh, Utah's offense. That was smart by them, and they had us. And, and realistically, if not for two heroic goal line stands by the defense, this game turns out differently. For sure. And rising, I think, was what we expected him to be. He heard the Gators throwing the ball. He heard the Gators running the ball. He was really effective as a runner, which we talked about. We highlighted it. And, and teams just don't they don't stop him. He's, man. He's a crafty he's really Texas crafty QB out there. Runner and faster than you think he is. Again, it's the cliche here. But, yeah, I was very impressed by him overall with his command, his toughness. Of course, I'm sure that throw at the end is going to haunt him forever. But that aside, he looked really good in this game. He looked solid, and it wasn't his best game. He was a little rattled, a little rushed at times. But he he mainly had his first read pretty much whenever he wanted it, when they needed it. And that's a fail by Florida. You're going to hear me say this. You've heard me say this before if you've listened to this podcast for years. The number one job of a defense is to take away the first read. You have to do that. If you do not take away the first read, you're going to make any quarterback look good. You're going to make a good quarterback look great. And thankfully, Alan, and I know all of you listeners love what I'm about to say, you know I love the directional throwing. And we said, ah. Cam Rising's picks almost all came right over the middle. Where was that pick? <laughs> right over the middle. <laughs> and so good for Florida on that particular play, which we'll talk about here in a second, too, what Florida ran on that play. But all in all, yeah, I think you said it right, Alan. We got what we expected, a few different wrinkles in there. Was Florida able to handle it? Generally, no. But in the highest leverage moments, they did it. And that is what changed, obviously, the outcome of this game. Okay, let's talk about them running the ball, because obviously they do it well. We they added tight ends in the run game as well. We'll talk about them in the pass game in just a second. But the Florida have the right personnel out there and just were getting outmatched, or do you think we didn't adjust fast enough to what they were doing? So I'm gonna say there's two main issues here. One is that Florida's linebackers and their strong safety and Dean are are weak, like we thought they'd be. I thought Ventral Miller played a good game. But outside of that, not good. Dean was Dean what is might as well have been on the bench and changed for someone else. If you're going to put him in the box as a strong safety and he's going to do nothing and pick the wrong gap most of the time, he's never going to scrape correctly. And scraping is where you come across line or scrimmage to fill a gap, which he pretty much never does. There's a lot to be asked for and desired from Dean. I'll start there. It's hard to get frustrated with our other linebackers. We know who Bernie is. We knew what was going to happen to Bernie. We've seen it for years. I felt bad for Bernie because he had no chance in the world of covering any of their tight ends, but especially not, you know, Kuthi, their best one. And that was frustrating, Alan. But I do think that Tony, if he could do it again, or at least if I was Tony, I would have done something differently. And, and that's this. If a team's going to run 13 personnel against me and they're going to march out all their big dudes and I have superior corners and I'm not afraid of their receivers, I'm going to put more down linemen on the field. A common counter to teams that run 12 personnel is to go with a 6-1, six down linemen. We almost never went with five down linemen. Not a single time. We were going to run base 3-4 with two undersized linebackers on the edge getting obliterated by their tight ends over and over and over again. Because we were hopeful that Trey Dean or Shamar James, who's a freshman, or Ventrell Miller or Bernie would make a play. And they largely didn't do it if it wasn't Miller. And oftentimes Miller made the play two gaps away from his gap five years down the five yards on the field. So that was frustrating. And I think Tony could have done, could have done a much better job there. And I think that's why, if you're wondering why was Florida so good on the goal line, 
because we had more down linemen. And to me, the question is, hey, are you worried about them throwing the ball vertically on you? No, I'm not. Well, why don't we bring in some more down linemen? Why don't we just say, forget it. We'll bring in more down linemen. I'm going to put a corner on your best tight end so he can't catch the ball. And if he wants to run towards that side, have more down linemen. So I thought that was a fail tactically uh, in that regard. And I thought Utah bested us largely because we were so stubborn at sticking with three or even four down linemen. And I want to say this, the D-line's caught a lot of heat in this game. On film, the D-line was pretty good. That might surprise a lot of you. The D-line was pretty good. We frequently had a penetrator. We frequently eliminated an inside gap. We frequently readjusted where they had to go. And there was nobody filling a gap behind them. And that part, frankly, sucked. That was unfortunate. Yeah, this might have been a pick your poison situation. If you don't trust your linebackers and you're worried about your defensive line depth and you don't trust enough of those guys, really puts you in a bind. And if you're not ready to play some of those younger safeties or younger linebackers, you're having to hope that what you're going to do is, is going to be enough. It was, kind of. Um, but I would agree. I, I thought we didn't adjust tactically fast enough, or really at all in some situations. But uh, before we get to the defensive line, I want to ask about this. So you've kind of hinted this. I mean, Keithy, Queeth. Not sure. I'm not sure either, but anyway, 80 baller. Yes. He was great. I mean, I think he's a difficult cover for even for anybody, for anybody, hard cover. Guy's a great route runner. Yeah. Explosive guy. But you would, if you're asking you to attribute the success rate to him, like on a scale of like, is a hundred percent him or like 50% him or like it's because the linebackers were bad. Where would you put that? I think the thing is in, in this particular game, when he's open by three to four yards, every time he's running a route as the first read, that's the linebackers are bad. We bracketed him a couple of times. Trey Dean failed on their biggest right. pass play of the day to bracket. He's the over the top guy and he jumps the, it's an out and up and he jumps the out route. What are you doing? You're the over top player. That was really bad. And the good news is I have no doubt now that this staff is going to hold these guys accountable. I do not expect to see Trey Dean still playing if he does this for one or two more games. He will be out of there and they will play a freshman. That is unacceptable. You have to do your job. And Bernie did a good job on that play. It's frustrating. So I think like it's it's hard to know the answer to like what you're saying with this question because we have holes that we don't have immediate answers to to fill. But, 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 you know the guy they're going to look at is number 80. And when number 80 is wide open, 0.25 seconds into the play, almost every play, you are doing something wrong. Something has to change. And Florida largely didn't change it. And to me, that is a tactical failure that we luckily got away with because we did not address it. There's no spot on a film where we actually really, truly changed it consistently. We'd bring in Trevez sometimes to cover him in obvious passing situations, but we never set on first down. Let's bring in an extra down lineman. Let's go to a 5-2 and let's put a corner on him. Let's just try anything. Let's try anything different. Now, to your point, it's week one install. I'm going to go back to this. It's a new defense, new terminology, new everything. It's week one. Maybe in week five, you've got you've practiced stuff where you can you can do that kind of stuff, but you're just hoping your guys can get the plays right. And quite frankly, Alan, the guys did not get the plays right. We had at least eight plays. I counted on film where we were confused. We blew assignments, weren't lined up correctly. Now some guys knew. Torrance knows where to go. Miller knew where to go. They're, they're, they're directing people and they're not ready. Their hands are up on their sides. They don't know where to go. They're telling them where to go. They're telling them who to cover. It was not pretty. And I think half of that is. Credit to Utah, they were running stuff that we did not prepare for. 
We just didn't. We were not ready for that much 13 personnel, and it confused us. And they were running at a fast pace. Happening, and they were tempoing us. Yes. So they caught us all game long. We never figured it out. We just survived it. Thankfully, in large part, to a guy I want to highlight right now, Big Dez. Let's go. I want to get to the D-line. Because Big Dez, Alan, had his coming out party. We loved him last year. He was a guy who flashed. But this game... That dude was a mini Vince Wilfork. And he played a lot of snaps. A lot of snaps. And he was quick from the first quarter to the fourth quarter. He did not look faded. And he was a major reason why, a major reason why we won this game. So I wanted to get to him. I mean, it's hilarious pointing him out to people who don't know Florida football and say, check that guy out. And they're like, what? What? It's like, yeah, he's like 400 pounds. They're like, oh my gosh. A guy that big normally, you see him situationally only on first down, only against teams that are built to run. Maybe in some opponents you don't see him at all, other than very situational. He was out there a lot, a lot. And as we said, that was a humid environment. That wasn't an easy environment to play with. He was impressive to me. Um, I thought Dexter played well for the most part. I very liked well. What I saw played, from, Dexter played very well. I like what I saw from Sap in a lot of rotations. Even guys like Justice Boone, who we haven't really talked about at all. There's a lot of guys who played well, not perfectly. Um they got McClellan out there, the freshman Chris McClellan, who's big. Yeah, he he's, looks good. He looks the part already. Yes, and he's already in the rotation. Um, but again, I'm naming most of the guys there, and the guy, of course, who won co- SEC co-defensive lineman of the week, Brent Cox. That this was kind of a classic Cox game. There's some really good stuff from him, and there was times where I'm yelling at him about doing some classic Cox stuff getting out of position, not setting the edge. What did you see from his play? I hate, I hate to say this. I hate that Cox won the player of the week because <laughs> it's, a, they just looked at the stats. He's got a lot of like, I know. Play. And I know he tweeted. I had so many people send me this. I know he tweeted after the game, his own stat line and said, give me respect. And, and again, I, my heart's in a great place here because I trust our coaching staff. And, and by the way, Cox is a phenomenal athlete and player. Let me, let me get this clear. First of all, without Cox, we, we don't win that football game, but without Cox, we also don't give up as many big plays as we did. And, I'm hopeful, I'm going to say cautiously optimistic, because I'm not sure if Cox is going to die on the hill, and that's the hero hill. Hmm. I will not do my job, I will win the game by myself. Well, guess what? Teams will game plan for you, and they will murder you for that. And that's what Utah did as the game went on. Cox started the game largely doing his job, and when Florida was unable to stop Utah, and they were running away from Cox, he started to not do his job. And Utah noticed it, and they took advantage of it. So there's the there's like the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hydecox, where when he's on it, Allen, he's shedding a right or left tackle immediately on the snap, and he's blowing up the play. And when he's not on it, he's shedding a left or right tackle, sprinting after where he thinks the ball is going, leaving his edge responsibility, and allowing someone to come out the backside for 40 yards. You have to take both of those in stride. But the reality is this staff is not going to allow that, but the staff is also stuck. And this is where it's hard to be a football coach, Allen. Behind closed doors, they're going to say Cox is our best defensive lineman at being disruptive. He's also our least team-oriented follow-instructions player. And what happens if we continue to play this guy every snap and he does not listen? And we're preaching to the rest of these guys, accountability, yes, watch out for hard. the guys next to you, 
do what's best for your team. And we let him keep doing it. Those guys are going to start saying what this coaching staff values are flashy plays, big moments, athleticism. So they're going to have their hands full with this one if they can't turn him around. Because unfortunately, the takeaway for me with Cox was he showed no improvement from what he struggled with most last year, which was going rogue. And that was very disappointing to me, despite the fact that he, again, had most of the highlight plays were him just manhandling someone. But you cannot do that, Alan, at the highest level week in and week out and not have that cost you football games. And it will cause your entire defense to stop trusting what's happening. So that's something to watch for, for sure. So let me ask about the defensive line. Do you feel like they wore down over the course of the game, especially in the second half, as Utah seemed to move the ball a little more effectively? You know what's funny is I thought yes at live time, but in real time, when you watch on the film, on almost every play, we had a defensive lineman getting through and breaking contain. We frequently were rerouting the running back. And I thought what happened as the game went on is one, we got a little bit more conservative. Uh, one thing that was nice, Alan, is we, we generally matched however many guys they had in the box. We've talked in years past where teams go eight, nine in the box and we're going to go six or seven. We didn't do that. We were loaded up in the box, but we were also content to, again, play multiple guys off the line of scrimmage a little bit. Uh, go and go in sets where we had three down linemen and five guys. So we have eight in the box, but those five guys are two, three yards off the line of scrimmage. And I think what was happening towards the end of the game was the running backs had a good feel that, hey, you know what? Florida is probably going to find a way through one of these gaps. But if I'm just patient enough, there will be one that emerges and I'm going to get five, six, seven yards. And and again, I, 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 I don't want to put that on the D-line. I do think largely they were doing pretty well and they were also taking on a double team the entire game. They're double teaming at least two of our guys and sometimes three of our guys because they had a numbers advantage by putting nine and sometimes 10 dudes in the box where you had three tight ends that at times would all block. So you're running a goal line set and Florida's running a three, four. It's a lot to ask. And again, I want to circle back to when they got on the goal line, they had a hard time running the football. Not every time, but a lot of the time. And it was largely because Florida was matching their bodies. So I think I'm going to chalk that up to a big fat unknown. I don't want you as a listener to draw too much from whether the D line sucks from this game or they're overrated, or we need help there. Because I'm telling you right now, the film is inconclusive. The D-line, I think, looked fine. Maybe even better than fine. The linebacker play and the strong safety play was horrific outside of Ventral Miller. It just was absent, gone, not there. Bernie makes a great hero-saving pick, but most of the time, those guys were just nowhere to be found, again, outside of Miller. And that was, to me, the bigger story. But it's something to watch. We need more data is what I'm going to say to find out. Is this D-line underperforming? Can they not get pass rush? Are they not able to block a gap? I want to wait and see because my thesis right now is I think they're going to be fine. Okay, yeah, and I would say they need to get more of these guys up and running. There's not a lot of depth, but some of these guys who didn't play a lot of snaps, if they can get them up to speed or find a use for them, even in waves and rotations, I think that would be really helpful. So they can give more snaps to more guys if they want to run a broader front. Now, again, you're not going to see a team like Utah every week, but that would be really helpful. Um, no sacks from the defensive line. That that a question mark for you? Or is that just a function of more of what Utah was doing to get the ball out quickly or run the ball frequently? If you want to go play Madden defense and run a goal line formation, it's pretty hard to get sacked. 
And that's again, that's part of it. Also, Utah doesn't by by nature and design, they don't allow a lot of sacks because right. they run twelve personnel and they run thirteen personnel and they load up the line of scrimmage and they're playing safe, right? That's what they're playing. So again, if you're panicked, take your finger off the panic button. Football is a matchup based game. This was a hard, hard matchup for Florida's defense. We talked about it. This was not a good matchup at all, given the state of where we are defensively. It was not good at all. Our best unit, our corners, basically didn't play the game. They pretty much sat in the stands with us, and they watched. <laughs> they almost did nothing the whole game. That's not good. So we had to suffer through the weakest part of our team being the key feature in design. And to your point, you know, Torrance had... A nice game. Not perfect, but what Torrance does as safety is be a safety. He saves touchdowns when they're going to happen by making a tackle. That's good because if we don't do that, maybe the game is different. And so the thing I'm going to say that Florida did well, and I think Tony would have hoped for in the game, was as long as we don't let them score touchdowns outside the red zone, if we can get them in the red zone, if we can survive that, it will be the best case scenario for us. And by and large, Florida did not allow them to score on big plays. They had to drive the ball on the field and they had to earn it at the end. And that is what, you know, again, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't perfect. We have issues. We have things we have to clean up. We have tactics we should change. It, it did come up big at the moment. And let's talk about that right now because we've gone far enough. The last play of the game was something that, that Utah's weakest at. We talked about it last week. Cover one man across the board, tight field situation with a robber or a rat, depending on your term that you like. The rat was burning in that case. And Cam Rising did something that Cam Rising had not done all game long, which was stare down his intended end from the snap all the way until the throw. So first of all, he wasn't open. Second of all, he doesn't even see Bernie because when he first looks at his tight end, I'm looking to the left of you, Helen, because you're sitting in front of me, but Bernie's off to his right side and his tight end window is open. He's looking for that window, but he never moves his head. And you can see Bernie actually stand still for a second sees that he never moves his head, slides into the window, and he throws it right to him. So good job on Bernie. We talked about this under Grantham's defenses for years. We had no idea how to even handle that. We literally couldn't do it. It was so frustrating what would happen to us when we'd try to play a robber or a rat or even zone. Great job by him. Great coaching by the staff. Here's the job of a rat. Here's what you're going to look for. Here's what we're going to funnel you towards. That is the culmination of really good stuff by Patrick Tony. Really solid defense. And it felt great for me that Bernie, who was out there giving his all, getting torched, gets that pick, catches the ball, secures it. And we should also mention, by the way, Alan, the game could have ended much earlier yeah. when Ventrell Miller was doing the same thing when he was playing the rat. He read Cam Rising's eyes. He slid over and he just jumped too early and dropped the ball. Yeah, expecting a middle linebacker to have great hands is, you know. No, it's, it's fine. Tennis, but but yeah. a good example of progress. So as much mm-hmm. as I'm kind of here saying, look, it wasn't a great debut for the defense in some respects. They didn't look nearly as polished as the offense did. In the highest leverage moments, there were some really good play calls and things that worked for us and things that I think we're going to see a lot more often. We're not going to see a lot of 13 personnel for the rest of this year, if ever. We're going to see a lot more of what we saw when Utah tried to pass. And Florida was generally better in those situations, despite the fact it wasn't always perfect. So I want to see what happens in a game like that, which, by the way, Kentucky is probably shaping up to be more like that kind of game, given what's going on with their personnel. So all that to be said, that last play, great defensive call. That's using stats, using what they're not great at. Make sure you're in the right lineup. Make sure you have everything set up. And it worked out for Florida. So you should always note that. That wasn't a random fluky pick. That was what Utah struggles with the most. And we were in the right thing. We should always celebrate that. 
for sure. And it led to one of the best moments in the swamp. And again, a great moment for Bernie getting that pick, securing the pick and celebrating with his teammates because it was a tough day for him. So to finish that way, he'll remember it forever as a great game. For sure. I love that for him. Which was awesome. I do too. Yeah. We love it as much as we get on here and talk about, Hey, this guy's got to get better. This guy's struggling. We need more of this guy. We want all these guys to be successful. I want Bernie to be successful. I'm very happy he made that pick. But I also know that if you're getting that kind of play out of Bernie each week, you're just not going to be able to win against the best teams. And especially like if he's going to do anything well as a linebacker, theoretically as a former defensive back recruit, it would be covering a guy like that. And you know maybe they thought he could do it and clearly couldn't. Again, that's a tough cover. But yeah, really great moment for him at the end there. Okay, something that I noticed... And then Napier got asked about this at the press conference and then declined to answer it. Uh, it seemed like the defensive line was lining up further off the ball, maybe as much as a yard off the ball. Is that something you notice? Is that just is that tactical or is that just them not getting lined up correctly? Everyone noticed that, and I have to be candid here. I do not have an explanation. I have not noticed that before on Louisiana film. Uh, it was very bizarre at times uh sometimes you'd want your defensive line to be a little off the ball if you think a team is going to run a lot of mesh routes or they're going to try to run a lot of crossing stuff or they're going to try to um you know sort of i mean it's weird it's, it's hard to imagine it's generally passing style you would do that if you think they're going to pass and you want to maybe run a simulated pressure you would start a yard, a yard off and you send that guy and not that guy but it allows your defensive ends to see who's coming or who's meshing or, or, or where the play is going but they were running the ball most of the time and you're just giving yourself yeah half a yard that half a yard space that you need so i am very curious to that answer i do not know the answer i would love to know the answer it's not employed anywhere that i've seen as some sort of tactic i want to hope that wasn't some sort of random mistake that occurred hard to imagine it's a mistake if every single guy is doing it but let's call that a storyline to follow uh, I have not received any good answer to that. And again, I don't even have speculation as to why that would be employed in that situation. Yeah, I was trying to come up with like the, here's maybe what they were trying to do. We talked about it. And I was like, you know, I, I got to just say the same thing. I, I don't know. Interesting that Napier got asked about it. Well, interesting that he didn't answer it either. Yeah. Which leads me to believe it that there's something there. I don't know. Either they, something they like or something they don't like. Or something that wasn't right or who knows, right? And uh, we'll find out this week if we're lined up in that same scenario as we were last week. All right. Any other things you want to note for the defense before we move on to changes? Well, you've got a question on here that I think is pretty solid. And I'm going to ask you. Okay. Uh, are you worried? I got this question a lot too. Are you worried about, about Patrick Tony as a defensive coordinator through game one? No, not at all. And... I think you've echoed a lot of what I said. I think you've answered that well, probably thus far. It's good to put a fine point on this. I mean, I would say one game for any coordinator would be like you're hitting the panic button too early outside just a disastrous. And this wasn't a disastrous performance. This is an elite program who is really good at what they do, which is (laughs) with our personnel is something that we're going to have a hard time with. So, again, not – not that we've said, hey, what about these things? We have some good questions here, but no, not at all. I agree. Yeah, certainly certainly not at all. And I think, again, the reason is he's put a lot of great stuff on film. Right. doesn't mean like that we won't have questions and or concerns after week six. Or correct. Something. And we'll keep watching. But I'm going to give him the benefit of a doubt as a teacher that he's going to get these guys doing what he wants them to do. Uh, you know, he, he tried he tried a lot of safety blitzes, which if you're, if you're thinking, wow, that's crazy. It's a really good idea on a team that doesn't have wide receivers you fear. 
because you're trying to get there before they can deliver that pass to the spot they want to go to. And your safety is not important on a passing play if they're not going to take it deep. It's a, it's a good thing, but you got to get home. Florida didn't really ever get home there. Utah picked that stuff up nicely, uh, but the concept was was solid. You didn't see a whole lot of corner blitzes no. in silly situations. That was nice. Uh, but in general, yeah, this is a wait-and-see moment. Again, I believe in, in Tony. I think his philosophy, his... Uh, what he believes about defense, how tactical he is, the formations he runs, and the stuff he'll do is going to be very, very solid. He's at the very beginning of figuring out what these guys are going to do in the game, how it all works, putting it all together, finding the rotation, and then eventually putting together a really good game plan. So I think if you're worried, I'm going to say, don't worry. It's one game against, again, a really good opponent. Yeah, and we mentioned some freshmen on the offensive side. Um, Shamar James technically started this game. He's a guy that you really liked or you know could be a breakout player. Yeah, I mean, because they started the game with multiple linebackers. So that shows you he's going to get playing time if they're going to employ multiple linebackers. And he's already at the top of that list. And then Devin Moore, freshman corner, who we, you know, we mentioned him. The staff loves him. But again, does that translate into immediate play time? Apparently, this staff, it does. He was out there at the end of the game on the last drive. He was, and he made a really nice, nice play. you know, nice play. And in general, one thing that I really noticed, and we should point this out in the secondary, for the most part, there were some issues. But for the most part, you saw a lot of improved off-man coverage, something that I've been highlighting to my absolute, <laughs> you know, frustration, 10 out of 10 level of frustration for a couple of years now. So much better. You saw Jason Marshall break down on a slant route that could have been a pick if it was thrown better because we finally are being taught how to actually play off-man. Thank God. So that was nice, and that was on display. Not perfect. Some guys are getting it better than others. There's still technique issues out there, but you can see they're working with them, and you can see who's picking it up and who isn't. And a lot of times, your freshmen are going to pick this stuff up better because they have not been able to form really bad habits in college for two or three years now like some other guys have. So they tend to pick it up faster. They're a blank slate. It's the first time they've heard some of this stuff. So in general... We should give note there, and I should also give note, something that's plagued Florida for so many years is getting beat over the top. And I'm very confident you are not going to see that very often with Tony. Again, I think he's almost the best at how he teaches defenses and their safeties to stay on top of routes. Dean, of course, got torched biting on that one, and I'm sure that stuck in Tony's crawl because he had the exact right call on. The high-low bracket right there is perfect until you got your guy blows it. But I expect Florida safeties to do what they did largely in that game outside of them going rogue, which is stay on top of these vertical routes. And that will also change the fates of Florida's defense. So there's a lot to be encouraged about here and a lot of stuff to clean up. You should see huge improvements from week one to week two on the defense, generally speaking. Uh, and so stay tuned to see what happens with that. Okay, other changes other than maybe having someone else other than Bernie covering a superior tight end. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. tactically in that game, there were things we could have done, right? More down linemen. Let's see in the future if teams want to play more goal line style offense. Let's throw some more down linemen in there. Um, I think Dean's the one to follow, right? Trevez, a guy we featured before, didn't have to cover anyone that would have messed him up, really. I thought he looked fine for what he did out there. Nothing good or bad, just sort of there. But Dean was not fine. And if he's going to be our strong safety and he's going to be the guy we want to put in the box as the extra linebacker when teams are going to go heavy, he has to be better. He has to. So I'm not sure how long his leash will be in that situation, but keep an eye on that one because that's that cannot happen like that as it happened in that game. And Torrance, I think, you know, you see him when he misses tackles, right? Which he did miss a few. People are going to miss tackles. I would like to see him 
improve in that area because I like so much of the rest of his game. But that that shows up that you see him in the frame and he's missing the tackle. And that happened like two or three times. I'm sure he wants to get that cleaned up too. Yeah, and he shouldn't have to make so many tackles. Right. That's the other thing. When Torrance is making eight, nine, ten tackles a game as your free safety, right? You got problems. That's not good. So we got to fix that. Okay. Do you want to move on to special teams? I do because this is kind of an interesting discussion. Normally it's like, bah, but today, interesting. Well, we should note, uh, look like Adam Mihalek. Which is the the walk-on. Right, the walk-on. the five-star freshman. Right. Um, Took the kicking duties there. Did fine. Did great. Didn't ask him to do... No. Actually, again, we said he was a Division I caliber kicker, and you can tell that because he can... He doesn't have a huge leg, but he also doesn't have a weak leg. He's able to kick it to the end zone, and that's generally nowadays all you really need. So Florida was doing something that I think a lot of people who are having heavy into statistics and analytics would question, which I was questioning, our penchant for returning kicks considering where the ball gets placed if you fair catch it. Florida did that over and over again, and I find that to be questionable. Very questionable. And obviously, again, this staff is, is is significant into expected value, right? Everything they do is about EV. And that's why they went for it on the fourth downs they went for. It. And that largely decided the game. Now, we haven't talked a lot about that yet because we're kind of saving that for the coaching corner because so much of what Napier did was not what other people may have done. And that led to a victory in some regards. But there was good and bad, you know, tactical decisions employed. This one is interesting, Alan. So one, I want to, I want to say this. There's room for exploration in returning kicks in college football. And I'm going to give you a thread as to why. Most teams do not actually have to cover kickoffs anymore because most teams don't run it out. (laughs) Okay, I like this. That's important, though. So if you're assuming if you run every kick out every week, you're going to have an advantage because you do it every single week. And your opponent doesn't. They're used to just running down the field, and it's a fair catch. But to your point, I can't imagine that that Napier is going to stick with this very long if we're going to continue to commit penalties. Yes. It's one thing if you're on the 21 versus 25. You're giving up some EV, but you give yourself a home run chance. But yeah, to a few be, yards here and there is nothing. But, but yeah. to be on the 11 and the 12 and the 13 yes. twice in a game of that magnitude is horrific. You cannot do that. That's a way negative EV play. So let's keep an eye on this. I I'm love that say, little counter theory. I, I'm going to say I like I like what they're thinking. I can okay. see the rationale for that. And again, a good a good strategist might try something like that and decide, hey, we're not quite getting this done, or maybe I need better kick returners all the way till next year. But I don't I don't hate the idea in theory. Um, I could even be favorable to it depending on how it goes, but certainly something to keep an eye on it. And again, a note, a notable thing to talk about in kick return. I didn't think we'd have this to add to the thing. I don't know if anyone knew he was going to do this, but here we are. And so we'll see what we do against Kentucky. Yeah. In the moment I was like, please stop returning those kicks. Right. Oh, for, it was killing us. I mean, the penalties were just, every time you saw the flag, you're thinking, what are we doing? We could just take it to 25. Yeah. We'll, we'll see if they, uh, yeah, I kind of like that little, uh, I think it's going to stick around for at least one more. Week. We'll see. I think he's going to do it against Kentucky. And then maybe one more time against USF. Uh, and then we'll see what happens. I think if we're committing penalties still, that's going to have to go. Away. Yeah, speaking of penalties, there were seven. We talked a lot about this staff really wanting to clean that up and that being a hallmark of this team, more discipline, less mental procedural mistakes. Seven is not like the worst number. I, th- I know they would like that lower, though. I think they're probably going to feel okay. Yeah. And the reason is there were no classic well, not classic, but what's become a modern classic sort of stupid Florida penalties. 
for the most part. There were some penalties, but you didn't have any egregious, crazy after the whistle stuff. There was no things that will drive a coach crazy. You know, you had two of those on your kick returns. You would have five if you're just fair catching, which is respectable. Uh, But I, I think that in general, this is going to get better. I have no doubt this is going to get better as time goes on. Uh, and we did not have, and I want to highlight this, we did not have those killer penalties we have become so akin to having automatic first down penalties. We did not have those. That's a big deal. So let's see if that continues because that has murdered us in years past where we just gift teams, you know, free first downs. And there's a couple of false starts where they moved the ball back three inches, which is That's negligible. fine. Again, a lot of those penalties were low, low leverage penalties. No problem. Okay. You've got a note here. The feel, the final moments, the the team, the coach comments after, anything that you want to say about that? Yeah, it felt amazing. You know, we were trying to discuss sort of how we all felt after the game and why we were all so high. And for me, I know why. You know, I, I viewed a lot of the NIL stuff and a lot of where football has been going and where it is right now with the state of the players' attitudes, with, you know, news coming out from LSU yesterday that they're, you know, one of their best receivers deletes all of his you know stuff about being at LSU gets in a fight with Brian Kelly and is going to quit the team and it's just it's it's hard to reconcile some of the stuff that goes on the me first attitude the things that are there but something about this Florida team doesn't feel like that you heard Richardson afterwards talk about what's the biggest difference between last year and this year and he said we're really a family now like and you can believe it the whole team is celebrating the win like just it feels maybe it's just me wishing it upon Florida but it feels very harmonious the reports you hear are that this team really gets along. And there's been a lot of intentional family bonding from Napier. And then, Alan, a moment that I can hold on to and cherish. In the post-game press conference, there wasn't, Anthony Richardson's got to get better. He can't handle this stuff. He sucks. It was, you know what? Richardson, so good that my wife could call plays for him, knowing nothing, and he would succeed. Hallelujah! How about we give somebody some love around here? Make somebody feel good for doing something good. And so, you know, Napier saying trust at the end is, hey, man, this is about trust. My players trust that I really appreciate that. I mean, there's just so much to be happy about. Like, this guy seems like he loves where he's at at Florida. He's representing the institution I care about and love so well. He cares about the players. He cares about the community. He cares about his staff. It's hard not to be super excited about this. And... The guy's been a winner, Alan. He's now 17 and 3, 17 and 3 in one score games. That's unbelievable. And he made some mistakes in this game, which we're going to talk about in a second tactically. But you know what? He has a way to win. And, he, and, I, and the players, that was on display in that game. They kept believing they were going to win the football game, and they did. And now you have to wonder where's their confidence at? How much more are they bought in this week? How much more can they be coached? And it just felt good. It felt good to watch this football team. I was proud of what I've saw and seen. And there's a lot of other programs, I think, this year that we talked about in the offseason now and that if things go sideways, it's going to get really dark and ugly and divisive and Civil War-like. And that's not the good side of what you want to see in team sports. So for now, it just felt satisfying. It was great. Most excited I've been since Urban and possibly really since Spurrier because Urban was sort of a robot, always. Billy Napier seems like a very authentic, genuine guy that you could 
you know, have a cup of coffee with or play a game with and just like the guy because he's, he is who he is. I really like him. I love his demeanor, which is calm yet. We'll show emotion and get excited, but seems really positive and not like I'm going to rip into my players or this is like, this moment is too big for me. I think the stability is really nice. And again, that all that family atmosphere stuff, all that. I think I feel that too. Now would just beat a top team team in the first game. It hasn't been tested yet. So, and again, those are the behind the scenes things that we can only guess at from how the team feels and kind of the vibes and stuff. But I'm with you. I think it's really encouraging and it feels like the program is in a really nice place right now. It does. And that was one of the most fun evenings in the swamp that I've been a part of. And I've been a part of almost every home game for the past 20, 20 so or so years. And that was as good as any of them as fun of an opener, as satisfying as a walk in the stadium on the way out, which for a long time, Alan, no matter who we beat, you did not have the cheers of it's great to be a Florida Gator or SEC going on, but it was happening. It was just great. And that's what I want to say. I'm super hyped for this week. There's so much momentum now in this program. Nationally, Florida is being covered by everyone. It built in the summertime with recruiting. It's building with other fan bases, recognizing what's happening. And we are reaching a fever pitch now. And I'm, I'm trying not to get myself too excited because you all know how much I love Tennessee. And I could see a world where it's undefeated Tennessee and undefeated Florida Knoxville. It's like, please, just give me all the feels of college football on a cool Saturday in September. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. We'll save yeah, that for we'll, later. I'll but throw I'm, some cold water on you here. But I'm hyped about where we're going after game one. And with that, let's, let's put our, our analytics hat on and talk about coaching corner. We could probably spend an hour talking about coaching corner from this past weekend, Alan. It seems like some of these coaches in the offseason uh, went the opposite of, of adding to their analytic skill set and putting the, those tools in their toolkit. But let's talk about Florida first. And I'll, I want to ask you, first of all, were you in favor of the fourth down Florida went for in the first half rather than kicking a field goal? Yes, I was. And I liked I liked the aggression there. It felt like it was a good spot for the team to continue to go for it. When you have Anthony Richardson, too, I think that gives you really a huge advantage. It's the old, like, short and, you know, Tebow, third and fourth and Tebow. Like, the stuff that he can do in short yard situations gives you an enormous, enormous advantage. I think that's why we'll be really good in the red zone all year. So I, I like that aggression in that moment in the game. Oh, absolutely. Also, great play call. <clears throat> Naked boot, yes. high-low rollout, very safe, million ways to go. He had either guy to throw the ball to, or he could have run it. So when you've got a play like that, you feel pretty confident. Game one, no one's seen it yet. No one, ensures what, no one is sure what you're doing. Loved it. Also, a super high EV play. 20-yard line, first quarter, fourth and two or three. It's like go for it every time, EV-wise, expected value-wise. So I loved that one. Now let's go down to a curious moment. At the end of the first half, Florida has the ball with 42 seconds left. They run the ball first. Now, I've seen Louisiana do the same thing before and then start throwing it. Florida is rushing to the line, and none other than Diabate goes down with a perceived injury. Of course, he's being told by the coaches, I think, to go down. Uh, falls down, and the clock stops. Then there is a 10-second runoff for the offense on this particular play, and then Florida runs the half out. At the time in the stands, Alan, I was mystified as to how that could be assigned to us, because my understanding of the rule always was that was obviously for the offending team that did it. I went home and I Googled right away what, you know, what 
what is the actual rule? And the answer is under a minute or two minutes, depending on the scenario of the half. If you as a defensive team drop and fake that injury, I as the offensive team get a choice to also run 10 seconds off, which of course makes sense. This prevents you from an inf- you know infinitely stopping the game. You just almost never see this happen in this case. What was more curious was that Florida was rushing to the line. So it was perceived that they were trying to then run a play. Here is what I think happened. One, Florida did not get assessed a 10-second runoff. They accepted it and wanted it because they, I think, chose that they were going to then just go into halftime. There was 32 seconds or so on the clock. Utah had one timeout left. It's now second down. If Florida throws and it's incomplete, it's now third down with 27 seconds left. You have to potentially punt the ball, blocked punt, flukiness, whatever. I think Napier had decided we have a lead. I'm a risky guy. We're on our own 20-ish yard line. Let's just run this thing down and get to halftime. So if you're wondering how that 10-second runoff happened, it wasn't that the officials went crazy and assigned something that shouldn't happen. Florida certainly assessed that upon themselves. So that's interesting. All right. Much more interesting than that has to do with a decision that is made on fourth down and three. There are two minutes and 20 seconds or so left. It's fourth down for Florida. Florida has three timeouts. Florida elects to wind all of the clock off and then call timeout, taking us under two minutes. Are you a fan of that or no? So in the moment, I was really really hyped and I was started to panic. I wanted more time left on the clock. Now, I have to say that Billy Napier, I would say he's proven correct here because Florida scored the ball with scored with plenty of time left on the clock. Obviously, enough for Utah to get all the way back down the field. So I think he knew, or that was his best guess, bleeding the clock right there. I think he was proven right. I, I don't know if that's the math always holds up on that, but in this scenario, there was too much time left on the clock. So I'd have to say I would ultimately agree with him, although in the moment I was very much questioning it. All right, I will disagree strongly. Okay. But I will say, one, the meta was correct early on. So Florida gets the ball with six-ish minutes, maybe, Alan, right? Something like that. Seven minutes. And he purposely is draining a lot of play clock and slowly going down the field because he knows he cannot give Utah the ball back. That's a correct assessment that your defense is struggling to stop them. And if they're able to patiently run down the field, they're going to at least get And they're going to go for it on fourth down every time if they have to. Right. And they're at least going to get a field goal. That's all they need. They have a great kicker. So that was correct. But once you get to fourth and three and there's two minutes and 20 seconds left and you have three timeouts left, you have to run your play. And here's the reason why. If you don't get it, you are now down three and they have the ball, but you have three timeouts. You line up there and you pray you can stop them. And if you do stop them three times, then you get the ball back with like a minute and 25 seconds left. And you're fine. That's fine. In college football where the clock stops, you know, like Utah drove down the field. Nothing, something like that. Same amount of time. You're good. You're golden. And so EV wise, if we just look at expected value, run a bunch of those same situations, that was a massive negative EV move. Now, if Napier were here, I'm sure what he would say was, hey, I had faith in Richardson. I had faith we we're going to get the first down. But it doesn't matter. I don't care what your faith is. You have to play the highest expected value play in that situation, which is to go run your play, which, by the way, didn't work. They covered our play completely. And thankfully, Richardson just found a way to run and get it because nobody was open. Um, run your play. You would have run anyway. And then if you don't get it, 
you're still in the game. But we basically said we're going to bet the farm on this one fourth down. And if we yeah. get it, we're alive. And if we don't get it, we'll get the ball back with maybe 20 seconds left. Yeah, I think they're, he was right is that if we give the ball back to Utah at all, they're probably going to score. So our best scenario to win the game is to take all of the time off and give them no chance to score. You saw it when we're trying to get down inbounds at the end and we're not doing it. Which is very smart, by the way. Great coach in there to get yeah. down inbounds. If you're being tackled, go down inbounds. Right. But so, but I but hear you, what you're saying. Absolutely. That you want to give yourself. You can't your take away you the want, chance to get the ball back. I know. But if you think, you know. Yes, but in this scenario. Yeah, in that scenario. If you're, if you feel like your defense, the, like again, that that's in like a vacuum, right? But in this scenario, if you feel like you're not going to stop Utah, but you still okay. Well, hold on though. Fine. So let's say you go for it right away in my strategy, and you get it. You can run as much time as you want off. You're still in the same scenario. Run the ball, do what you want, etc. You could have your guy stop short if you want. But what we did was take away the chance that we could get the ball back if we didn't get it. And let's just use some math here. Let's say that we're sixty percent on that fourth down and three to get it with Richardson. Four times out of ten, we do not get it. Four times out of 10, if you wait 30 seconds and you call timeout, you've just ended the game. In my strategy, four times out of 10, I'm still in the game. I can still win the game. So to me, there's no benefit gained from that timeout and draining that time off that's going to outweigh the cost. So let's say you get a 5% bump because you happen to take off 30 seconds and then you scored like we did, which could have mattered. Again, you're not going to get that net EV scenario. But I think I'm curious because I know Billy employs all the analytics guys. I'm very curious what that discussion was like on Sunday or the next day or even today because I know they're having it. I know they're having it. Next time, what do we do here? Because the math will clearly tell you you've, you cannot and do I, that. And I hear what you're saying. I was thinking that he's thinking about this particular game. I understand why he did it. But you're right. You could have found ways to potentially bleed the clock. Yeah. And now, again, we scored probably faster than we wanted to. So that's not a... That's true. We did because we broke that first run in there. Yeah, which is that, and that also became very interesting. If you're Utah, and this might have sounded crazy, if you're Utah, it's like, did you just let us score because you were running down the field so much on us? Again, that's that's a nuts thing to do. Um, But to a certain extent, obviously Florida survived and we're fine. But something to think about. Okay, the last one. I got a lot of talk on this one. A lot of people felt like Utah got four timeouts. There was a fervor about this in the stadium. And it felt that way because we could not hear what the ref was ever saying. The reality is, another weird rule we're bumping into here, Perkins, a guy who I love, makes a great tackle and his helmet flies off. Why? Because he doesn't buckle his chin strap, which is another story for another day why these guys don't do that. (laughs) But his helmet goes flying off. Utah calls timeout immediately because he tackles the guy in bounds. This would have been their second timeout used of the second half. Except, again, in the stadium, we cannot hear this. The reality is when a defensive player's helmet goes off under two minutes, the clock stops and the play clock stops. It resets to 40 seconds. The referees put the ball into play like normal, and then they signal the start. So what happens in that scenario is the refs go to Utah and say, hey, you used a timeout, but do you want it back? Because we have to basically set the ball because Perkins lost his helmet. And of course, Utah says, of course, we don't want a timeout. March your team back out there. Ref puts the ball in, signals ready for play, bingo. Yeah, and, and that's that was what confusing. happened. So Utah did not use four timeouts. If you're still out there thinking they did, they did not. That's exactly what the ruling was. They used only three, but that was majorly helpful for them. And yeah, then and they the had a terrible were confused about that too. By then the way. they had a terrible spotting of the ball, which was horrible after Cam Rising's run. 
which was re-freaking-diculous. They got about extra 10 or 12 seconds in that situation where the, the refs just like fumbled getting the ball back to the line of scrimmage, and they got basically tons of time to reset what they wanted to do. So all in all, I was not in love with that crew. There were some weird, zany things that happened, but you know what, Alan? We won, and thankfully, not that important. Yes, and have SEC officials for the game in Utah, so that yes. should be a better look. Right, okay. This one is amazing. Yeah. If you had a chance to watch the North Carolina App State game, you were lucky. You were treated to mayhem and madness. App crushed State, for App State, by the way. Crushed. App State's quarterback was on fire. He has a two-point conversion to take the lead late in the game with like 30 seconds left. And he misses the easiest throw the day he's had. You know, it's just, wide, but the guy basically did not help him. Should have didn't help him. The route. He turned one way, went the other way. It was brutal. And you're like, oh, what a fun game. What a terrible way to end. Well, North Carolina. And I actually didn't see this because we turned the channel. Oh, mistakes were made. North Carolina gets the onside kick. And like a true hero, they're one of their best athletes gets the ball and scores a touchdown. And we're all watching this in disbelief because obviously if he had just fallen down, the game is over. Well, App State's sideline's excited. And this particular guy's excited, and no one else is. He's like dapping his teammates, taking off his helmet. Like he feels like he's a conquering hero because he scored a touchdown. And you can tell that this guy's so disconnected from the reality of like the game was over, but now you have your moment where you scored a touchdown in college, but your team is now in jeopardy. And that guy's face obviously progressively went from happy to, oh no, what have I done? As App State then put the ball in the end zone in three or four plays. Amazing. Now they have to go for two to tie. And unfortunately, they don't get it. They run this, by the way, they curiously run the same exact play they ran for the previous one, thinking their quarterback is going to run in the end zone. A very interesting call by them. I was not a fan of that decision. But in general, Mac Brown thankfully addressed it. A lot of times coaches don't address it. He addressed it afterwards. Zany game, crazy game. Hey, if our guy just falls down, we win the football game. It's on coaching corner because I want to ask you, Alan, why is it seemingly so hard for coaches to get their players to do this? And shouldn't we as Florida fans be so excited that what you mentioned happened twice in a row at the end of that game, Florida's running back Montreal, again, sophomore, right? He tried to get down when he was being tackled in bounds. He did all he could. That's brilliant understanding by a player and great job by communicating for the coaches. What happened on this onside kick? Is no one telling this guy, if you get it, just fall down? Like what's happening? Uh, probably not. Which is crazy. Which is that's like the most high leverage moment of the game. Do not score. I guess I just didn't think that that was going to come up. I don't, I don't know. Crazy to me though. That's coaching corner. All right. Now we wow. saved the best for last. And again, there's more we can get into, but FSU we LSU couldn't what a do this without talking about FSU LSU. All right. Let's first talk about FSU. You're Mike Norvell. It's third down and one. There is, I don't know, a minute left at this point in time. In Less, the game. I think. And unfortunately for LSU, and my heart goes out to that poor kid who dropped two punts, not one, but two punts in that game, if you didn't watch it, that both led to points, or would have led, to, would points, have led to points, would have led to points, sorry. And he's just, you, on the, he's distraught, like he's never going to live football again, he's in the sideline, he can't believe it, his life is over. And Florida State's on the one half yard line. It is third down and one, they're up seven. There's less than a minute left, they could take a knee and kick an extra point field goal to put the game away. Instead, you, Alan, as the coach of Florida State, decide to run a toss play. Do you have any problem with this? Or is this just a normal play? They no, this is insane. Insane. 
you're you're basically just better off doing and if you just kneeled it out that yes. would have been better yes a and toss play like you scoring a touchdown there does a really almost nothing nothing three points or seven points is the same thing yes just put the game away but a toss like the riskiest of all running plays on the one yard line it was like they had never considered that it might go wrong i can't believe that they called it now i don't want to be risk averse and like you know don't do things you know that might go bad it's like there's there's no upside to it no that's completely dumb on every level it's completely dumb especially in that stage of the game, especially with that kind of lead, especially with that kind of time. And obviously Mike Norvell's face was immediately like a ghost. Like he was just like, what have I done? I can't believe it. This is the end of me. And of course, I think he's the most relieved person in America. But LSU then gets the ball on the one yard line. In comes the guy who dropped the punt. They throw him the ball twice in a row, which is a heartwarming moment. They drive down the field. This is wild, by the they way. They score with no time left, basically. <laughs> one second left. There's one second to put it back on the clock, right? The whole thing is like a Hollywood story. And then they have to take the extra point, which they've made before all game long. Except this time, their left protector, so the leftmost guy, does something that's absolutely inexplicable. And it wouldn't surprise me if their special teams coach just gets fired today. He just does not protect against the inside guy coming through the gap. And if you like Last Chance you. There's a hysterical breakdown people have sent about the last chance you coached that got fired and disgraced, breaking down like how bad that was. But essentially, on extra points or field goals, you let the edge guy run around it because he'll never get there in time as long as your snap is good. He'll never block it. But you cannot let the inside guy get through because he'll block it immediately, which is exactly what happened. So you have this cataclysmic failure of the most basic play you can imagine. And Brian Kelly takes his first L. But what I want to ask here is, should you have gone for two if you're LSU in that situation, or would you have kicked the extra point? Well, I mean, they look like they knew they wanted to go for one right away. I've long been on record saying I want to go for two right there, absent some kind of very strange circumstance. And people have started doing this, and they, a lot of them have failed and lost the game. You That's saw true. that at App State, right? That's true. Uh, but I still like it. I you know one play scenario to end the game. You don't have to go into the crazy overtime system, which you're going to have to eventually start going using these two point plays anyway very quickly. So I I don't know. I don't think you can like say if you like the strategy of going for one, you shouldn't do that because maybe your guys let the inside rusher in. But I I'm always in, almost always in favor of going for two out, outside of other circumstances. Yeah, this is a good one. This is my favorite scenario to go for two in because if you get it, the game is over. There's not a minute left. There's not a minute and 30 seconds left where you take a risk and maybe the reward doesn't pay off. This is a guaranteed you win the football game. So it's the best time to do it. But secondarily, I I also see this case. If I'm LSU, Florida State has a touchdown off of your muffed punt. You've technically outscored them. You have the momentum now. You've played a better fourth quarter heading into overtime, and you just drove 99 yards. With all that being said, let's look at the math. What are the odds, if you're LSU, of your best two-point play working? Now, this is a hard thing to look at because we have data on all the two-point plays. We have data on end-of-game two-point plays. Generally, you know, it's it's a little worse than 50-50, um, like 48 47%, right? But let's imagine that you have a really good play that you like. And App State had a great play against North Carolina that worked perfectly. But you know what? They still didn't complete it. It's a high-pressure play. 
But if you do, and you're, let's say you're 52 or 3% in your mind that you're going to win, what are the odds that you can assign to you winning in overtime when you've been trailing the entire game and now you're tied? Can you really say it's more than 53 or 54%? What if you're one place 60%? You know, and I'm just throwing you ideas here. And I think as a coach, sure. I would want to think through that. And my thought would be, if I'm really not confident in my two-point play, I'll play overtime and let more plays happen. But if I feel good about my play, this is an outright chance for me to control my own destiny and win the game. I am the offense. I have the advantage. I dictate what's going to happen. I can win right here and it's done. Or I can enter into more plays where there's a lot more randomness. And so I'm, I'm with you there. I think this was a great case to go for two. But I will say in LSU's defense, they had that momentum meter on full. And they perhaps felt, let's carry that over to an overtime. And Florida State might just not mentally be ready for it. And it's a safer way to win. But either way, um, just ridiculous ending. And and obviously not a great look for, for Brian Kelly. We'll talk about this more. But you and I mentioned, Alan... I mentioned this last pod, the culture fit just feels so wrong there. It looked wrong. Now you're getting players coming out and saying he's a fake Ed Orgeron. I mean, it seems like a really weird marriage there. And if you're Brian Kelly, I wonder if he's not thinking right now somewhere in Baton Rouge, like, what have I done? I left Notre Dame. I had a good thing going. And now I'm here. And this is just the beginning of what could be a really tough season for them. Potentially. Again, I wouldn't put too much into this one game, but... Not the way you want to start, for sure. You dug yourself a little bit of hole. All right, you ready for me to thank some patrons here? I love this part. We're gonna we're gonna let's do it. Give you guys some love. And these are the patrons that have been with us. We're gonna start from the beginning, All day right. one to today. First, of course, on the list, the faithful one himself, Tyler Remery. What's up, buddy? Man, first fan of the GNF. There you go, Andrew Amend, Brian Bill, Jeffrey Shaw, Jason Thies, Seth Road, Jason Landry, Brad Cluxton, Adelphia. Uh, Alpheus Stoltzfus. I love it. Alpha as we, as we call him. But yeah, I love they put his full name on there. Micah Pounders, Doug DiVirgilio. I know that there guy. There you go, up, the Doug. Man? John Montague, Chris Borales, Bert L. Bill, Lon Stafford, External Tangents, Benjamin Wiseman, Caleb Batchelor, Adam McGeed, Brian Summer, Matthew, the one and only stat boy, Josh Judy. There you go. Josh Judy, let's go. <laughs> Chancey Bahannon, Richard Fueyo, Diego Rivera, Jason Lamore, Nate Baum, Take it away. You got Matthew Brigman, Andrew Axum, Tyler Pierce, Josh Hostetler. Let's, let's go Sarasota. Chi K. Clapper, Matthew Fry. <laughs> well, that's really nice. I like that, by the way. But notice how I didn't give you what you wanted. Um, Sam Weinmiller, Joshua Kimball, Liam White, Sam Haggerty, Jeff Levin, uh, Neil Degrassi, Tyson's Unwatched Masterclass. Great. It's awesome. It's fantastic. Uh, Ian McFetridge. Stephen Benfelt, Robert Wolf, Joel Whitehead, Mike Davis. What up, Mike? Yep, Adam Riddenauer. Yo. Brett Arrington, Gary Zietland, Mike Brunge, and Craig Anderson. And also, obviously, you read him earlier, but shout out to my old college roommate, Jason Landry. We spent a ton of time playing NCAA football mascot matchups back in the day. And now he's a it's, doctor. It's coming back, team, NCAA but football. It is coming back. Also, coming back, Alan. <laughs> was yours truly there in you our go. picks session. Tell us what happened there. Well, I went four and five, which is not bad, but you went a very robust six and three, which leaves us tied at nine and five. You already caught up. Good I job. I love it. That's what I, my goal was. It would have taken me all year maybe, and here I am. All right, West Virginia loses to Pitt in a pretty fun game, 31-38. Wild game here. It feels like West Virginia probably should have won this game. Maybe definitely should have. JT Daniels throws a dime 
that hits his receiver in the face mask, basically, but instead it goes right through his hands for a pick oh, six. Oh, gosh, that was terrible. That's just soul-crushing. Uh, but really fun for these two to match up. Obviously, longtime rivals. Uh, great atmosphere. Fun Thursday night game. Penn State, Purdue, another really fun. Penn State pulls it out, 35-31. I think if you're a Penn State fan, this is not encouraging for you. No. You were hoping you were going to look a lot better than this and that you were going to be a 10 or 11 win team that could that could contend in the Big Ten. And it doesn't look like that right now. Again, it's just one game. But I think although they won, they're probably disappointed, perhaps, with maybe what they thought was a higher ceiling. All right, NC State, well-hyped. They barely survived East Carolina. The East Carolina should have won this game probably. They win 21-20. Maybe that's fine. And this line wasn't that high. But, man, not not a great start to the hype train. No, East Carolina misses an extra point, then misses a field goal. They Terrible. get redemption and the chance back to get the field goal, and they miss it at the <coughs> end. The ACC survived here. The North Carolina schools survived. They both went on the road to battle other teams in Carolina, which made for just great theater. And both of them really should have lost, but they didn't. So they move on. I think for NC State, I felt like they're very overvalued. We'll see what happens as the yeah. Year they on. didn't look like I I wanted them to look definitely for a team that, not that highly ranked. North Carolina absolutely survives against App State. This yep. line was even. That was basically right. They win sixty three sixty one. App State scored forty points in the fourth quarter and lost. That's a crazy stat. forty. I'm glad that's what I was going to say. I'm glad you brought that in forty points in the fourth quarter. First time that's happened in like fifteen or sixteen years in college football. All right, Memphis. At Mississippi State, Mississippi State takes care of business 49-23. We basically said we thought Memphis has no chance of stopping the air raid, and that's exactly what happened. And then we have Arkansas beating Cincinnati 31-24. Good win for Arkansas, Cincinnati's game, but again, they lost so much from last year. I think if you're a Cincinnati fan, this was very encouraging. A lot agree. of people, including myself, had, had expected more of a dip in your performance, especially in game one. But they went toe-to-toe with what's a very respectable Arkansas team. People are high on them being a dark horse. I mean, that is a very good showing. They had a chance at the end. I think they should be very happy with how they played. And again, I think Luke Fickle, very interesting that he stayed in Cincy, but he's proving himself to be a very capable coach. And Arkansas, of course, their comeback story this quickly under Pittman has been really nice. Okay, Notre Dame, Ohio State, not the blowout that some people thought. This is a close game for very, a while. Very, close. Ohio State ends up putting it away. They went 21-10. to 10. There's a reason why we wanted Marcus Freeman so badly. We wanted to fire Grantham and take him from him. He's a phenomenal defensive coordinator. Of course, they're going to have to figure out how to play offense, but Ohio State's much more talented than this Notre Dame team was. I think if you're a Notre Dame fan, you feel good. If you're an Ohio State fan, you probably feel happy you won, but maybe some questions well about the big concern for them was your, defensively. i was going to say your team but then in reality your offense is going to get it rolling and, and shred people your defense looked very good and that was huge for them because that had been a major issue yeah i mean they brought in jim Knowles from oklahoma state to fix that i mean another guy we loved right it's another guy our targets guys are, are performing well here right and so i think you have to feel good about that uh the receiver Jackson Jackson Nigma Smith Smith Nigma I can't remember how which yeah, one that is yes, he yes, was yes. out for most of this game which he's their most dynamic guy I, I'm I'm not really worried about them offensively I think I would be encouraged about them defensively if you're Notre Dame you you, you held up so I think that's what you want oh I to think do. I was gonna say the result of this game is I think both teams feel good 
I think that's exactly right. Ryan Day was ecstatic. He said, I'll win every game like this because I think he just wants a defense and he feels like he'll be able to win. So we'll we'll see what happens. All right. We talked about FSU, LSU. FSU wins 24-23, one of the weirder games I've ever watched. Do you think FSU is better than you thought they'd be? Yes, by a small amount. I, LSU is a major question mark. They're kind of what major. I thought they'd be, really erratic Really right all over the place, yeah. FSU is more competent. Jordan Travis is better than I gave him credit for. He looked, I thought that was the bigger storyline. He looked much better than he looked in previous outings. Yeah, and still, they maybe should have lost the game, too. I I would say, you know, this is one of those early season games it's hard to draw too much from. It's like those Notre Dame-Texas games where, like, oh, they're both really good. This is maybe my thought is both these teams are really erratic. That's my thought. And they're both going to win and lose games that you don't expect. Yeah, these both look like six-ish wins team. Right. Somewhere around there. Man. Ooh, boy. I was way wrong on this one. Yeah, nice work, Alan. Georgia just eviscerates Oregon 49-3. to I mean, crushes them. It wasn't even this close. Stetson Bennett, who I've not given probably credit to, he looked really good in this game. Didn't look like Georgia had any problem replacing those defensive players. They rolled them. Yeah, this was a great game. For Stetson Bennett again a guy that obviously I had maligned and and you know average quarterback and also said at the same point in time I hate that I maligned the guy because he's the story you all love like he's like a unheralded nobody who comes out and quarterbacks one of the most athletic teams in the country I mean it's it's awesome at like you know every single level I want to celebrate it but this was a game that he can really be proud of this was his best game ever in college I'm not going to get too high on it because Oregon is not a team that's going to challenge Georgia's offense like some others will. But I am going to get really high on the fact that Kirby Smart has got this thing rolling. We long talked about in year two for Kirby Smart, he was sitting on this unlit bonfire. <laughs> I was one of my favorite segments. And uh, and he was <laughs> on an unlit bonfire. And now he is lighting the bonfire under all of his opponents <laughs> as he roasts them. And much to yeah. people like Tyler Rummery, our first fan's total chagrin, who just does not want to give the man credit, it's time to give him credit. He has created a football war machine at Georgia. Are they cheating and paying people? Maybe, probably, who knows, but... You cannot deny the consistency he is now putting out there with Georgia. And make no mistake about it, he was only a couple of plays away from more national titles here, Alan. So he is here to stay. If you think that they were some sort of lucky flash in the pan or they had a -a once-in-a-lifetime defense, this team is going to be here for the long haul. We can only hope that Napier rivals him, and we have decades of greatness to watch between these two. But that was an evisceration. I don't even know Oregon plays football this week after getting beat that bad. It's bad. All right, unfortunately, our boy Daytona Steve, too many cigs down on the track. Maybe, or maybe not enough. No, maybe not enough. Maybe, maybe he's a, too sober now. A, too many Miller Lights or something. I don't know. Uh, his scared money, don't make money, probably failed in the second game. Houston betrayed him. Yeah, he took a lot of L's in this one. Ohio State was wrong. Louisville was wrong. But you know what? There's always this week. Stay tuned for his pick. <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's what you appreciate with Daytona Steve. He's, he'll always be back the next yeah. week. And in fairness, parlays are really hard. So if you guys want to send in your parlays and we'll track your records too, <laughs> Seriously. it's really hard. <laughs> it's all in just good fun. All right, SEC roundup. Sam Houston on the road against A&M. A&M was slow out of the gates, but they win 31-0. Yeah, you know, if I'm A&M, it's, I'm not like worried, but I'm also like, eh. Not sexy. Was not sexy. Troy gave Ole Miss quite a bit to deal with in the post-Matt Corral era. Ole Miss wins 28-10. So I watched a lot of this game because of, I was with my buddy Russell, former 
podcast guest. Yes, yeah, been on many years ago. Mega fan, and uh, they were up like twenty three at halftime, and I think they could have run the ball for a billion yards, and they basically stopped and were trying to work out the kinks. Which I like that mentality. Yes, and it didn't go the way they wanted it to. There were still still kinks. Uh, they're still trying to figure out the quarterback stuff. I I think for them they should be encouraged that their defense played well. I think the offense will find its footing. So it's a, it's kind of a high state situation where I wouldn't I wouldn't panic yet. All right, Auburn takes care of Mercer forty two sixteen. They were handily beating them from the start here. Sure, it's fine. Okay, Elon Vandy. Oh man, Vandy's two and zero. They won forty two thirty one. Elon yeah. is not exactly a quality <laughs> opponent, but they are two and zero. Yeah. That's good for them, but after that Hawaiian, you you maybe thought, okay, maybe they're a little more juice. Maybe not. Maybe not. They did tie their win total from all of last year. Though. Great job. So we'll see if they get number three at some point. Uh, Utah State played Bama. Bama, I mean, how often is this every year? We could just like play a recording. 55 nothing. Sure, they could have won 100 to nothing and if they wanted to. Utah State's coach said it was the best football team he's ever seen. And he's a good coach. And I don't think he's wrong because that's what I think about this Bama team this year. <laughs> so... South Carolina, 35-14 over Georgia State. Pretty pedestrian game by them. Yeah, Shane Beamer, it was great. He was like, well, we won this game, and you know, others in the past haven't, alluding to Tennessee dropping a game to Georgia State a couple years ago. Which, which, which like. is why he's nice for the SEC right now. He's a feisty little upstart there. All right, Kentucky struggled mightily mm. with Miami of Ohio. Yeah. They won 37-13, but two of those scores were defensively. One was a kickoff return, a lot of short fields. It was not a good-looking outing. There was plenty of reason for panic from the Kentucky fans heading into this week against Florida, which, of course, we're going to talk all about. We'll get to that. But that sets the stage for what we are about to get into. It should be noted, Alan, the SEC is entirely undefeated, except for one school in Louisiana, LSU. Come on, LSU, get it together. Always fun to have the SEC beating up on everyone else, uh, aside from losing to Florida State. All right, so it is now time, Alan, for Kentucky prep. We're here. Mm -hmm. We put to bed Utah, which was sensational and amazing, and that's kind of the highs and lows of football. You don't get a month to bask in the glory of beating Utah. You get like a day, and then you turn your attention to the next opponent, another night game showdown in the swamp. We don't know what Kentucky's ranked, and we don't know what Florida will be ranked because it's Monday, and the rankings are coming out on Tuesday this week. So we don't know. Kentucky was 20th. Florida was unranked. Florida could very likely be ranked above Kentucky. In fact, I'd go as far as to say I expect that to be the case. But regardless, if not, that's kind of lazy, but yes, whatever. regardless, there will be two undefeated teams battling in game two. Florida, Allen, I will say this before you take over. We lost last year. Kentucky is two and two in the last four games. Mm -hmm. So they no longer view Florida as some sort of insurmountable juggernaut that we yes. once were. Yes, and, uh, and have played close a lot of these stoops years. Even the Florida wins not always have been easy to come by. And this is interesting because this game is, you know, it's the first SEC game. It's right at the beginning of the season here. Normally, it feels like Kentucky's an afterthought. Even if they're tough, they're like, you're not really thinking about them. But with the way they played last year, they're ranked now. There's some people who are picking them to win 10, 11 games this year. Well, let's see how they do being the hunted right now. Florida raised their profile quite a bit, but this is usually a bigger game for Kentucky than it is for Florida, or almost always, I would say. Um, maybe not so this year. I think Florida is looking at this with a lot more attention than it probably normally gets. I wonder how that will affect the game. We know a lot about this Kentucky team. 
Mark Stoops is there. Been there for nine years. You know, a guy's done a really nice job at Kentucky. I mean, some people would say this is the best job in college football because you get paid really well and your expectations are to win nine games every few years. And he's kind of exceeding that right now. So good job by him. Talent, significant advantage for Florida. Kentucky has 26 four-stars. They're about 27th in the talent composite. UF is 12th. They've got five five-stars and 41 four-stars. Again, Kentucky's improving in this area. They've got some talented. They're more talented the younger they are, but still a big edge for Florida. Returning stars, Kentucky's got 10, five apiece. Florida, 14, six on offense, eight on defense. Uh, maybe we'll drop this stat sometime soon once it becomes not relevant, but it still is for now. The coaching staff, first year, Rick Scangarillo. think I got that right. First year. Was the QB coach for the Niners? He was replacing Liam Cohen, who's now back with the Rams. So new offensive coordinator. They took a guy from the NFL again, trying to replicate that success they had last year. Brad White, his fourth year, used to be with the Colts before being Kentucky for a while now. All right, some interesting things here about Kentucky's offensive personnel. Will Levis, who's well known, kind of broke out last year, both for his play and for like eating bananas and doing other weird things eating the entire banana yeah if you haven't seen it go watch it it's we talked about it last year it's it's terrible big dude big arm athletic he's high on draft boards because he's really toolsy right hasn't really put it all together but is a guy who theoretically could be a good quarterback i'll emphasis on theoretically now, normally for Kentucky, the, the guy maybe Florida's most worried about is Chris Rodriguez, number 24. I don't think he's playing. As of right now, doesn't seem like he's on the too deep. There's quotes that there's some eligibility issues. Mark Stoops has said he's been advised not to talk about it. It's out of his hands. So I, now this could change, right? But as of right now, we're going to talk about it like he's not going to play. Um, also on the running back depth chart, um, Ramon Jefferson, who's a believe a transfer, isn't look like he's not going to play. Another back on their depth chart, Juton McLean, probably not going to play. The one guy that you might recognize is a fantastic name, number zero, Cavassier Smoke. Love. I mean, one yeah. of the best names in college football. Right. Um, he's there. I mean, I don't think they would have expected him to be the feature back, but he's going to get most of the carries. I would assume they have a freshman as well. But their their depth chart just took a huge, huge hit this week. Um, that that's major for them. Wide receiver Tavion Robinson, Virginia Tech transfer, re- kind of replaces Wandale Robinson, who was their previous transfer, who had a lot of success as now as the NFL. So he's gone. They've got to figure that out. So those are the names. Minus Chris Rodriguez, we'll see how that affects them. That that's big for them. He's been their dude the last couple of years. So how they respond to that is is pretty big. Okay, as you scouted them. You know, again, some similar names, but different OC. What did you pick up from last week? It's definitely different. So the 49ers tree and the Sean McVay Rams tree have similarities. They also have differences, uh, quite a few differences, especially in the passing game. And I love Sean McVay's passing game as far as a bunch style set goes. It's my favorite one. My favorite, favorite one is more of what Heupel runs at Tennessee by spreading the field wide. 
more air raid style in that regard. But if you're going to go with that style, it's McVay and the 49ers do nice stuff. You know, Napier, similar thing. But this offense is just one game, but it looked different. But it also looks different, Allen, because this is not the same Kentucky team from last year. In fact, not even close. The offensive line on film was atrocious. I mean, atrocious. They allowed four sacks. Kentucky was two for eight on third down. They rushed for only 50 yards on 25 carries against Miami of Ohio. And the film showed that Miami of Ohio was dominating the line on almost every single snap. They had two of their four linemen in the backfield. They were crushing them at the line of scrimmage. This is a great test for Florida's Let's call it maligned defensive line. I think the average fan that's not going to watch film thinks Florida's defensive line was terrible last game. Again, I disagree with that narrative. We're going to find out this week, though, because Kentucky's major weak spot is their offensive line. Secondarily, they lost all three of their receivers last year, either to the NFL or graduation. So they have a lot of young new receivers. We mentioned their transfer, who is very, very good. Robinson's a very good, very productive receiver. So the stage is set this year. For a different version of Kentucky, but also something similar. Last year, he came on the pod and said, you cannot let Wandale Robinson be guarded in man coverage by himself or just put the whole defense on him. And we didn't, and he murdered us. And so did, obviously, Rodriguez, who destroyed us. So this is a super different Kentucky team without Chris Rodriguez, who is an absolute workhorse of a back. This team is coming limping in. And Will Levis, the guy that last year I said on film did not have great feet, was slow to throw, did not read the field well. Perhaps I'm the only person on the planet that thinks this, but after watching his film for the rest of last year and into this first year, he still struggles to read the field well, to throw accurately, to get his feet underneath him, and to finish his throws. Like He still has mechanical issues at times. He has a very strong arm. That's why guys like him. He's very athletic. But he did not look good against Miami of Ohio, despite throwing for 300 yards. He had several passes that should have been much better that were not on the mark, that were off. He threw a pick in the end zone when he had an open receiver that was badly behind a guy, simply because he just did not finish his throw with his footwork. So he does not do the little things well, in my opinion, Allen. And again, he's generally not going to make more than a second read. So I still just do not see the Will Levis like this year hype maybe if he plays college football this year and the next year he starts figuring stuff out he still has only been a starter for a year but as of right now the guy that florida is going to face is a guy that's largely going to look to his first read and his second will be probably a mesher or a crosser kind of coming in which is fine Uh, but the real problem he had last week was that they became one-dimensional and Miami of Ohio was able to pin their ears back and get all over him. I mean, he was under all sorts of pressure. It was not his fault on a lot of those third downs. But that does not bode well for them going against Florida. I was shocked. I saw the stats and I thought, okay, let me see what happened on the film. But on the film, I was shocked to see just how much success Miami of Ohio had. So this is going to be an interesting game, scattering report-wise. I think if you're Florida's defense and if I'm Tony... Obviously, my game plan is to control that line of scrimmage. And if I'm looking at film, I should be able to do that with just my four down linemen. I should be able to, my starting defense, I shouldn't need anything special. I shouldn't even need to bring pressure. I should also be able to take advantage of their young receiving core, and I therefore should focus very heavily on the accomplished receiver in Robinson. 
bracket him, make sure he's harassed, he's taken away, do not let him run free. Their biggest plays in the game largely went to him last game. He was also targeted the most. And here's the beneficial tactical advantage that anyone's going to see that watches film. Kentucky, much like Florida in the past many years, it's like they'd never seen a twist or a stunt ever on the defensive line. And Miami of Ohio did it basically every single play they thought was a passing down with unbelievable success. So I'd expect Florida to to do the same thing. Expect a lot of twisting and stunting. If you're not sure what that is, that's basically where your defensive tackles and defensive ends are going to exchange the lanes they rush in. And you can do this in all sorts of ways, but you're just switching where you go. So you create confusion for the offensive linemen and their assignments and who they are supposed to block. That's a big thing to watch in this game uh, too. So look for that as well. And then in theory, one of the things Tony's best at is covering passes with his scheme. We've talked about creepers where you bring, let's say, a linebacker and you drop a defensive tackle or defensive end back. We talked about simulated pressure, which we ran against um, uh, Utah several times. And this is a game that sets up really well for that because if you can get pressure with just your four, but you're going to bring those four from different areas against an offensive line that is struggling to pick up even a regular four-man rush, you should be able to get the quarterback off a spot, cover his main target, and make life really difficult for him. So this, to me, Florida's defense versus Kentucky's offense is going to be a telling game of the progress Florida has made from last year to this year and from the Utah game to this game. Because unlike the Utah game, This is a favorable matchup now for Florida. On paper, this looks very good for us. There's a lot of opportunity here for Florida to have success. I will be keenly watching to see if we're able to actually do it at home on Saturday night. Yeah, I'm with you on the Levis stuff. Every time I see him on the boards, I'm just kind of like, I I don't get it. Now, again, Josh Allen, Trey Lance, the guys who get drafted almost purely on potential. So I think that's why he's he's there. Yeah, great athlete, great arm. And, again, you don't want him to get loose on you. You don't want him to be able to put the ball down the field. You don't want him scrambling out of the pocket and picking up yards. But I'm with you just as the regular quarterback stuff feels like you can take advantage of him. Without Rodriguez there as the batting ram, it feels like they're in a lot of trouble. Now, let me ask you this. Let me just take the other side of this Miami-Ohio thing. How much do you think that could have been just an aberration? They had a bad game. Miami, Ohio is doing weird stuff. It doesn't look like it. On film, you can tell that. There was domination at the line of scrimmage by Miami of Ohio's defensive line. Complete domination. Now, the okay. secondary struggled of Miami of Ohio to cover people. The linebacker struggled. Stuff you'd expect. They're outmatched. But that T-line owned Kentucky's offensive line. And look... You've had a lot of departures. I mean, Kentucky's only returning 10 total starters. They lost a lot of their mainline guys. People were hyped about them, I think, way too much so this year. We talked about it. Kentucky right. second in the SEC East. Sort of what's going on here? Almost like a consensus second. In Correct. The now, obviously, you had Rodriguez, but you have you have a bunch of new, inexperienced linemen. And we at Florida know what that feels like. And that feels bad in the SEC. But now they are really playing with what feels like two arms tied behind their back with no Rodriguez, none of their backups, basically one healthy proven running back in smoke who's like a change of pace kind of pass catching guy. This feels like a tall order for them. And it feels like a great opportunity for Tony and Florida's defense to prove to Florida fans, hey, let's get rid of some of these demons we've had the past couple years. Let's put a good performance on film 
This is a great opportunity. If I'm Tony, that's exactly what I'm telling my defense. This is the opportunity you want to prove you've grown, to prove you're better, to prove that you can handle taking care of business when you theoretically have the matchup advantage on your side. Okay, let's talk about Kentucky's defense. Normally quite solid. The guy who's terrorized Florida, Josh Pascal, is gone. Oh, thank God. That guy just (laughs) murdered us last year. He did. It made every tackle. Uh, on the other hand, DeAndre Square, linebacker, number five, he's back. J.J. Weaver, you recognize him, number 13, he's back. Square's the leading team tackler. Weaver, probably their best pass rusher. Again, this is normally a solid unit who has deficiencies, often in the secondary. But tell me what you saw from them. So let's just set the stage here again. Kentucky is replacing all three of their starting defensive linemen, all three of them, and two of their starters from the secondary. That is a lot. We talked about Utah. Six of seven guys were gone. That's why Florida won that football game. Make no mistake about it. That is why Florida won that football game. And now two weeks in a row for a running offense, you're facing a team that is replacing significant defensive linemen. Now the advantage Kentucky has over Utah is their two linebackers are legit. As always, Mark Stoops is a linebacker factory over there. It'd be great if we could get even a, a few of those guys right here. For sure. They're super competent. And so that's going to help them, and it's going to help their young guys. They have talented guys on the D-line. They're just young and inexperienced. It's going to help them here because they're going to fill the right gaps. But they have a lot of issues. And this secondary was really bad last year. They were 8th or ninth in the SEC. It's hard to imagine them being much better. They've got two talented guys. The rest of the guys, not quite as talented. It's really hard to get a read on these guys. What's hard about these week one, week two, week three matchups, Alan, is you don't have enough data to know exactly what their tendencies are. With one game, you really don't know. And you're just looking at individual talent. What's their technique? How do they look on film? What are they doing right? And against Miami of Ohio, they had success. There were some simple fumbles that went wrong, things that went here or there. Uh, But all in all, Kentucky, in my opinion, their greatest weakness year after year after year is that they sort of remain a very, I'm going to call it a stoic defense. Uh, they remain static on the back end. They like to employ cover two, cover three, cover four. They often don't hide it. They play a very old school, let's keep the back end very safe. Let's get good defensive linemen and good linebackers and keep everything in front of us and just play sound football. That works really well when you have the personnel they had last year. That's That's when it works. This year, I don't know. I think it's going to be tough for them to just line up and play back-end coverages. And obviously, Trask famously torched them like we predicted he would when they did something like this. AR is really good at attacking zone. He could have a lot of time with three new defensive linemen. This feels like a tall task for them. And on film, this feels like, similar to Utah, Florida should be able to have a lot of success against their front seven, especially their front three and four. And that means Florida's got a big advantage at the line of scrimmage. On top of that, we should be able to take advantage of the youth in their secondary. Unlike Utah, which had all returners, tons of time, all Pac-12 guys, not the same with Kentucky. So you're going to get a worse version of Utah in almost every regard here, minus linebackers. So that's the invert. The linebackers here are going to be much better than what we saw with Utah. But everywhere else you could say is a push to worse in the front and especially worse on the secondary side. So 
I think Florida has to be feeling pretty good about their offensive matchups based upon what we've seen from one game of film, plus just knowing the turnover. That's a good matchup for them too, I feel like. Yeah, I don't think that they're going to run anything out there that'll be super confusing for what the Florida staff. And again, this Florida staff's not as familiar with Kentucky. They haven't played them every year. There's a new staff. But yeah, they're not especially tricky. And what Florida likes to do, it's not like the pure antidote to what Kentucky's doing. But yeah, it does feel like they have opportunities for success. There's nothing that jumps out at me that says this is going to be especially difficult for Florida. I don't know. I mean... There's something about Kentucky that makes me nervous just in their overall like stability and level of play, and especially against Florida. They seem to have our number a little bit, but this is a new staff. New staff entirely, right? right? Different moment here. So, and again, this is like week two is really hard. You have the week one stuff, so you've seen some stuff. But Super hard. Stuff changes from week one and week two. I don't want to get down to the end of this and be like, Kentucky has no chance, which is how it feels as we're walking through the matchups. But... Florida does have an advantage, certainly on both sides of the ball, from what I've seen. Yeah, no doubt. Let's look at special teams. It's a push at best. Kentucky has a really good punter. Okay. Their kicker, relatively new because he was hurt last year, didn't play a lot of games. He was three for three on Saturday. Florida has not attempted a field goal yet. So Kentucky also returned to kick off for a touchdown. Yeah, so maybe advantage so, special teams, Kentucky? Question yeah, in mark? theory, like on paper, it's a push. But I'm going to say for one game, and, and we say this every year, like you just said it, right? One or two or even three games is not really enough yet to get a great idea of what your team is going to do tendency-wise. But you could say push, but I think advantage Kentucky is fair in regards to that, given what they've done in game one. Inferior opponent, grain of salt that, fine. Uh, Penalties-wise, Totally, yeah, un- turn- totally unknown. Yeah. They have a lot of new players. We have a whole new philosophy. They could go either way. Turnover margin. Historically, Kentucky has not been a great turnover margin team. That means nothing this year. So also unknown. And time of possession. Both teams want to possess the ball for a while. Right now, heading into this game, I'd imagine Florida is going to have the advantage maintaining the ball, given all the things we talked about. So I'd give Florida the advantage of ball possession in this game. Uh, but again, a lot of unknowns. Alan, do we have any injuries, suspensions, depth charge issues? Which so far it's been super quiet. That's yeah. unusual for a Florida program to just be cruising along with nothing. Nothing that seemed to crop up during the game. Nothing that I saw from the presser today. Again, nobody significant seemed like they were going to be missing. So, just a dream start. Good news. Dream start. All right, it's time. It is time. Can you believe it? Here we are, week two, Let's game go. prediction time. And I'm going to start with your keys to the game. Okay, on offense, I would like to see over 250 yards passing from Richardson. I think this is a game you should be able to flex a little bit in this. That they're going to, as you said, we want to see more from him in this arena. Feels like there's opportunities here against their secondary. It would be really encouraging if the wide receiver core stepped up a little bit. Defensively, I'd like to see some turnovers here. I think there's going to be opportunities. Levis is is a guy who will give you the ball. So let's say two turnovers on defense, I think would be, you know, it's hard to discount or count in turnover luck, but the defense here, I think has opportunity to be aggressive and force them into mistakes. And I think he will give them the ball. I like it. I like it a lot on offense. I was going to go with something similar. I'm going to throw a rushing category in there too. Uh, I think Florida can do either 
either, I'll take either of these, 250 rushing and 250 passing, or I'll take 300-200 in either way. So I'll take either one of those, given Kentucky and where they're at on defense. These are big numbers. It's a big outing against an SEC opponent of their caliber. But on film, with what I'm seeing, and again, Florida put up a lot of offense against Utah, I think that's achievable. And on defense, I want to see, I want to see, you know, sacks is tricky. I could go pressures this is a better number of sacks. I think four sacks from the defense would prove that we're there. We should have a lot of pressures in this situation. A lot of tackles for loss should occur. But I like the four sack number, and I'm going to want to hold them to under 100 rushing yards. I think that is going to be the key to this game. Uh, Kentucky has to run the ball to have a lot of success. They're built on play action. They like to run motion. They like to run bootlegs. Um, they're going to still run that bunch set where they run crossers and a lot of mesh routes. That stuff works a lot better against a high-level opponent if you can run the football. It does not work very well if you cannot run the football. That's going to be a real problem for them. So I think if we hold them to 100 yards, it's going to be tough sledding from them to pass the football, much like we saw what Utah was struggling with. But in this case, it's a receiver that Kentucky has that's good, and Florida can match up with a bunch of guys with their receiver where we could not match up with the tight end. So I think if we hold them here, the secondary should also have success in this case. And I think those two are the key. So both of us are kind of looking for something similar. Uh, I would imagine turnovers could could be produced as well, especially given yeah. we're going to put them under pressure. If we have a lead of any kind, it's going to cause them to force some things. And we we didn't really talk too much about Tavion Robinson. But again, they have a featured guy. We complained frequently that our staff didn't seem to notice that the other team had a featured guy. What do they do to slow him down? I think will be interesting. What kind of coverages will be really on the back end? You know, noteworthy of how this team is going to maybe choose to defend certain guys moving forward and give us some more information there. Okay, yeah, for sure. And like we said, we did see brackets already, obviously on on Kuthi or Cuthy, uh, number eighty last week. It was there. We failed at some of them, but it was there. We'd we'd never seen that previously. And I think this week's a much easier game plan because anytime it's not a middle of the field guy who's going to yeah. block or go out, you can really assign your bracket to them. So great point there. How do we handle a, a clearly high target guy for them? Okay. Prediction time. Why don't you go first? All right. I think, and again, I, I say every time on the season preview, it's really hard for me to do these games without doing what we're doing now. See some data, look at film, especially after looking at the film, and then knowing and waiting to see what's going to happen with Rodriguez, who is the workhorse of this offense. Again, make no mistake about it. This guy is as important to this offense as anyone else is. Probably the most important guy. Next to Levis, your quarterback's going to be a big deal. But without him, what they're dealing with, the way they looked on film, this game feels like a back-the-brinks-up game for Florida. And we Did we say at the given, top that Florida's gi- favored by four and a half? Given the spread. That's what I was about to say, four and a half. I mean, this feels like a lock of the week kind of pick for me. Billy Napier is a coach that I think you're going to see tremendous progress week one to week two. That's what teachers do. Teachers make your team better every week. Even though you have variants, they get better. The matchups are very favorable. We're at home. It's a night game. The Swamp's going to be riding as high as ever. Florida fans respect Kentucky more so than ever now. It's not going to be a team we just show up and don't care about. It feels good. It feels solid. I think Florida is going to win this game comfortably. I think Florida wins this game 34 to 20. And I think it could be even more. I think there's scenarios where this game is 41, 10, 37, you know, 13. I think I I see a lot of that. I'm going to hedge myself here and say, we still have 
some kinks to work out. We're still early in the Napier regime and say 34-20, but in my mind, I feel like 14 is maybe not even enough for this game right now. Okay, yeah, I'm right in line with you here. I, I was going to go 30-17. So, again, our tendency to be in lockstep here. Yeah, con- I said this at the top, or when we're walking through here. Kentucky's still dangerous, I think. They still have people who can burn you. They still have talented dudes. If you don't respect them, I think that'll happen. Again, I, I'm hopeful. I want. I I believe in the staff. You know, and especially after this game, one against Utah, that they're going to be able to put the players in positions to succeed, and it's not going to be some crazy thing. We just can't stop Kentucky doing something over and over and over again. But at the same time, there's this little like gremlin that's like, okay, don't sleep on Kentucky. I don't think the team is. Feels like a good score, and you're right. It could be more if things bounce our way. If they don't, this gets kind of tight. I still think they can pull it off. I think last week's win was really big for them. Yeah, significantly. So I think these teams are very different in their makeup of confidence. Florida comes in sky high, and they're playing at home. Kentucky comes in riding a lot of preseason hype and then not feeling good. That was not a good performance on film, which, of course, you can argue for sure is going to be a booster this week for their coaches and their staff, getting them focused. But look, anytime you have offensive line issues, and Florida knows this, anytime you see on film that the offensive line seemingly has no idea how to handle stunts and twists and things that have killed Florida right for years, you generally cannot fix that in one week. You especially can't fix it with the pressure that Florida is going to put on you on the offensive side of the ball in general with their ability to run the ball and throw vertically, I think especially against Kentucky, allowing them potentially to have more windows to throw to and work the middle of the field, work that kind of soft 10 to 20 yard range. This just sets up like a significant challenge for Kentucky and a great opportunity for Florida. And so we're going to see if Napier can sustain this momentum, if he can clean up the things that weren't great, and if he can build on this success. And then again, look, the the the, the way could be paved here, Alan, setting up a a 3-0 start for Florida with a lot of hype behind what this team could do. Because as we said preseason, if this team stays healthy, most of these games are coin flips. And this is why you have to view your schedule week to week. When you face an opponent who now all of a sudden lost some of their key guys, and the same is true for Florida, right? We're like Kentucky. If we lose our best playmakers, what are we going to do? We're going to be in trouble. So right now we're fully healthy. They are not. You have to take advantage of this. Napier is the kind of coach that I think will. We're at home. I'm looking forward to it. I want to see if Florida can take that big step forward. All right, it's now time for another HelloFresh live read. It's America's most popular meal kit. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. No more trips to the grocery store, and you can count on HelloFresh to make your home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That is why it's America's number one meal kit. We've mentioned before that our resident dietitian, Amber, has put together a bunch of great comments from this before each week. You've heard them, but in general, the convenience level is a 10 out of 10. The food tastes really good. It's very easy to utilize, and there are a wide variety of dishes to order. If you want to try out HelloFresh, you can. You'll get 16 free meals from HelloFresh by going to hellofresh.com slash gnfp16. That's 16 free meals for hellofresh.com gnfp 16. That link is also in our social media. As always, thanks to HelloFresh for sponsoring 
the show. All right, upcoming week two slates. Not as many good games this week as last week, but there are still some good ones. We promised we'd pick the Clemson-Georgia Tech game, which is occurring actually right now as we record. We don't know the score. We're not looking. We have no idea. We were going to pick it because we said we would. Clemson's favored by 24 over Georgia Tech. Do you think Clemson rebounds this year and does better than they did last year against Georgia Tech? Or what is this going to be? Yeah, Georgia Tech feels like they're especially a hot mess right here. I'll I'll take Clemson. And again, we're going to use rankings here that are last week's rankings. Correct. So if you hear that ranking and think that seems weird, it's because it is weird because we don't know the new one yet. All right, Louisville. What about you? You're you're with you? I'm already, yeah, I marked it down to Clemson. Good, couldn't even say it. Clemson, yes, taking you over here. Big number, but uh, I I believe in this Clemson team this year. I I don't think Dabo was a lucky coach for four or five years even though they has got staff turnover I, I think he's going to turn it around louisville at ucf louisville got smacked by syracuse ucf favored by six and a half yeah i mean i was really surprised by that louisville result i mean maybe syracuse is great this year but i can't take them after that loss so i i'm forced to pick ucf here yeah it feels like i, I have to do the same thing you just can't again week one is hard it could be just a, an anomaly but for now you can't you can't go against it south carolina on the road against number 19 arkansas arkansas favored by eight it seems a little low maybe to me maybe people are still in on south carolina but i'm gonna definitely take arkansas here i'm on arkansas all over this one i like that a lot all right wake forest number 22 wake forest favored by eight on the road against vandy a lot of respect for Vandy yeah. maybe here, feels I, like. Yeah, that feels weird. Give me Wake Forest. Give me the Demon Deeks for sure. You know, I would totally take the Demon Deeks here, but I just I just want to take Vanderbilt because how often do you get a chance to take Vanderbilt and to pick them when they're, undefeated? they're never in it? Yeah, never. So I'm going to do it, even though it feels like that's not the wisest thing. Missouri on the road against K-State here. Uh, K-State favored by eight. Yeah, K-State kind of a dark horse candidate to win the Big 12. I like them here. Um, I think Missouri's frisky. Their freshman wide receiver, Luther Burden, is the real deal. So if you get a chance to peek in at them, check him out. But, yeah, I'll take K-State. I'm going to peek in and take Missouri with eight points here because (laughs) it's the SEC, and when in doubt, take the SEC. I like it. App State playing quite the schedule, opening at home with North Carolina, now on the road at A&M. A&M favored by 17 in this one. Man, did App State just – give it all they got against their state brethren there against North Carolina. They're deflated. I don't know. A&M feels like they're just going to tuck inside this number. I'll take App State. I am too. Good pick by you. We're lower, almost in lockstep here. All right, Tennessee, my beloved Tennessee, favored by seven on the road at Pitt. I don't love giving Tennessee points here on the road. I'm going to have to take Pitt. I'm taking Tennessee. How I know you are. My heart's there. Come on, boys. Come on, Vols. Set up a showdown. We all want it. Iowa State at Iowa. Iowa, in case you didn't know, last week, Alan, won a football game 7-3. to three. But what you may not know <laughs> is that the 7 was acquired by two safeties and a field goal. They looked rough. Ooh. Defense, amazing. Yeah. Offense, there isn't one. Classic Iowa here, but... This is the game also that the guys at Every Day Should Be Saturday nicknamed El Asico in the imitation of El Clasico, the soccer match. I mean, I got to, of course, I got to go with the clones. I know, you got to go with the clones. It feels ridiculous to go with Iowa here. I mean, after that performance, I mean, they, the clones are a good defensive team, but the clones lost like a I lot mean, of dudes, everyone for sure. from last year. Like their whole team is gone, but. Can Iowa score a point? I mean, 
I don't know. This feels silly to pick the road team here, but I'm going to go with the clones with you because I just, I mean, I'm sorry. Three points against an overmatched opponent at home all game long. You got to think that I was, that I was staking make something happen. All right, here we go. USC first test for Lincoln Riley favored by nine on the road against Stanford. This feels very reasonably priced at nine points here, which makes me nervous for some reason, but I'll take USC here. Yeah, USC, it feels like Lincoln Riley should be able to dispatch Stanford here. But uh, you know what? I'm going to take Stanford. Do it. I'm going to do it. Interesting line here. Number 10, Baylor, takes on a ranked BYU team. They were 25th. Could be different. BYU at home, favored by three and a half. Yeah, I mean, I picked Baylor to make the playoffs, so I got to go there, obviously. I'm going here as well. I mean, BYU looks nice. This is a game I definitely want to see. Very curious how that's going to work out. This is a late night game. I think the kick is at like 10-15 Eastern time. Um, I could be wrong, and it could be like a 12-15 game (laughs) because I saw the time, and 10-15 could be one there. But if it is a late night game, I'll see it. And if it's an early game, I'll also see it. (laughs) So I'm in good shape. All right, number one, Bama. Taking on Texas. Bama favored by 20. This is so interesting here. I mean, Bama juggernaut, of course. Texas, do you believe in them? Are they going to be able to put up points? Sapin had a quote about, you know, all these coaches who know them. Oh, Sarkeesian knows you. He's like, well, does anybody think that we also know them? I was like, oh, that was so very Saban. Man, the most Saban thing ever. (laughs) Any other team... 20 against like maybe a surprising or an offensive minded team. But until proven otherwise, I'm going to have to stay with Bama, even at a 20. Don't bet against Bama. That's a good rule in general. It doesn't always work, but it's a good rule. I'm on the same train you are there. Bama rolls. All right, Daytona Steve entering into the week two slate here. He's got the Bernie parlay or the Bernay parlay. So it rhymes, as he would say. He's got Alabama covering Texas. So he's on the train there with us. He has Florida covering Kentucky on the same train there. He's got USC covering Stanford. So he's there with you. And he has Baylor versus BYU. All right. He's got three of our, he's got three of our four, but technically four of our four. So for him, it'll come down to that USC Stanford game. Otherwise we're all wrong. His lock of the week is not Florida. That feels like a mistake. He's got Baylor as his lock of the week. Man, which on makes the me road. nervous here. I mean, my, do I need to change my picks and stuff? Yeah, you might need to actually. But that's gonna that'll that'll wrap up our uh, our preview for week two. Other items, Alan, that we have on the docket. yeah, just Richardson, Anthony Richardson, SEC Offensive Player of the Week. We mentioned Cox, co-defensive lineman of the week. Congrats to those dudes. And yeah, the live event coming up. Can't wait October Friday before the LSU game. It's gonna be hopefully nice, cool weather out there at first magnitude. We'd love to see you all there. Um, what a great pod this was. Hopefully yeah. you enjoyed it. We had a great time discussing it, as you can tell, Alan and I. And hopefully you are riding a high of where Florida football is right now, where it's hopefully going. And another chance this Saturday to see what Florida's about, what steps we take forward, what decisions are made personnel-wise. And and look, if you want to check out the snap count, Florida played a lot of true freshmen in the game on Saturday. And that just warms my heart because they're not doing it just to rotate them in. They're doing it at positions where it's unsettled as to who should play there. And that's what makes it great. So hats off to the coaching staff for exploring those opportunities. That's all I got, Alan. Yeah. Thanks to everybody for listening, man. What a great week to be a Florida Gator. We'll be back with you next week to tell you all about what happened at Kentucky and looking ahead. All right, guys. See you next week.